have no idea where this will lead us, but I have a definite feeling it will be a place both wonderful and strange. Howdy, and welcome to the wonderful and strange Twin Peaks Logcast. I'm Khalil. And with me today is a nice relative to my awkward fart. <laughs> well, you're darn tootin' there. <laughs> Howdy, yo, tater tots. Who, who are thou, strange cowboy of the Twin Peaks? <laughs> I'm the Unplugged Professor, still reeling in on Howdy. Like, why? Why, Khalil? I, I think that, you know, we're like 43, 44, somewhere in their episodes deep. And so now this is the new character trait. It's time, to, going time to, to shake it up. It's time to shake I'm it up. I'm going through our podcast midlife crisis. <laughs> midlife crisis? Are we going to end around the 90s? I don't, well, no, I don't know. Maybe. We don't know how long <laughs> this is going to go for. Well, as we're contemplating our mortality, I've got to say, I've got some questions for you, Khalil. Okay. Uh, some of those questions do involve, um, who are you? Okay. How have you been? Uh, and how this podcast has changed your entire life and scope and ways, and where are the bodies? Okay, so I think I'm Khalil. Yes. Um, Mandarin orange, seven waffle cone. Mm, mm-hmm. I would say mm-hmm. are probably my answers to those questions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I I have a question for you in return. Yes. Um, today we're talking about the special features of Twin Peaks. Yet again, there there continue to be more. This time we're talking about the interviews. My question for you, Professor. What do you think of the interviews? Uh, I believe that they were incredibly insightful and honestly showed a heavy amount of character for uh, almost the majority of individuals here. Now, mind you, mm. there may be a little sense of bias here and there because I'm sure that they don't want anyone bad-mouthing the show mm-hmm. like on the DVDs They were and edited. They were they, edited interviews. They were edited some more than others, and it seems that there has been a general focus on the odds and ends of the production. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, no, it it seems like this was a very unique community mm. as opposed towards other Hollywood productions. Or that's what the majority of sentiment I've been getting. And in some ways still continues to be a unique community with the 2017 revival of the series and the new crop of fans both offline and online. The new crop. Crop, we grow them. <laughs> Twin Peaks fans are not born, they're grown. It's a common <laughs> saying here in the West. Howdy, welcome to the Twin Peaks Farnyard. And, you know, we're going to be talking about these interviews for quite a long time in this episode. I just want to clarify right off the bat, like, this is not a replacement or supplement for checking out these interviews yourself. If you have, like, the Z to A collection or the Complete Mystery and they have these features or someone you know has it and you can borrow it from them, check it out from the actual source material because no amount of us talking about, like, Ray Wise is going to replace... Hearing Ray Wise. There is a performance to each of these voices that do stand out on their own, so I do heavily recommend checking them out uh, either before, after, or in be- during the pod. Yeah, you, you want to watch it like, at the same time. Pause it, because we go in order of the discs. <laughs> but um, we're just offering commentary and a bit of like a resource that we know when we get closer to the return, we're going to fall back on this knowledge, so we're going to check out these features anyway. So we might as well share our thoughts with you as we do it. And if this interests you, we're happy to have you join. In this case, today we're looking at the Z to A collection Blu-rays. And we are going through these various disc numbers. I know, Khalil, you wanted to share some of those disc numbers just in case people wanted to. So as we get to them, I'll I'll let you know where they're at as we get to them. Uh, Notably, we're not going to be talking about disc 10. It's like like Judy. 
Right, right, uh, Mr. David Bowie Jeffries. We're not going to talk about now Judy. We're not going to talk about Judy. We're not going to talk about Dis Tan because <laughs> Dis Tan has some spoilery things. I didn't even want the professor to get a hold of because we got like I open, I put the play button, I hit the hit the button on the on the PS4 mote, and it opened up between two worlds on Dis Tan, and it got spooky. We saw cast members there, and David Lynch was insinuating certain characters are even alive. Mm-hmm. I don't want you to know who's alive and who's dead, Professor. Yeah, that's not a preference. I think that even sooner than that, you should you go in assuming everyone's dead in Twin Peaks. Like this was the first one you had a hunch on. I, I, we were going crazy marathoning all of these special features, yeah. and you were correct. So it was the future, only one that was made like around 2017. It was right before the the return aired, I believe. There may be a future episode where we do either a mini episode or we do something like on a look back, or we'll forget. We will not forget. Oh. I will not let us forget. If I, we do forget. We're Let it know, be known who was supposed to remember. We're going to comb absolutely everything that we can. We're going to comb that desert. To Twin Peaks. The Twin Peaks Desert. The Twin Peaks Desert. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to Twin Peaks Desert. <laughs> and obvious content, spoiler warnings for all of Twin Peaks, Firewalk With Me. Uh, we might bring up the short films or any David Lynch film, Dune or Before. Yep, and it, there will be points why there will be light mentions like Blue Velvet throughout this entire um, series of interviews just because some people have been working with David Lynch with certain projects. I think the most explicit one in which like there are spoilers are for uh, would be from James and yeah. his interview from the Magical Interactive Grid, which we'll get to later, um, talking more on Eraserheads. So if you're all cool with that, hey, welcome in. The first interviews on the Z-Day Collection are on disc three. It's called A Slice of Lynch. Yeah. And this is an interview that uh, I remember seeing years and years and years ago on, I want to say the Twin Peaks Gold Box. So it's been around for a while. And it's, I think, mid-2000s. David Lynch is at a diner. It's, like, framed almost narratively. Yes, it is heavily, like, it's almost as if you're going into a little bit of a short film yeah. almost when you're entering in. Which, by the way, if you were to walk into this bar and there's a notable means of a slice of Lynch, what do you think a slice of Lynch tastes like? I think it would have a very flaky outside crust. We agree It'd there. Be very, very, like, um, attractive outside. But on the inside, mm -hmm. it's maggots. Um, I'm pretty sure, like, <laughs> on the inside, there's, like, decay. But, like... It's decay that's productive. Like, it's the things underneath the ground to, to steal, again, the, the blue velvet imagery here, to something that's underneath that it's like the sustenance of the earth that's kind of gross. You see, like, when I'm going into, I don't think gross myself. Whenever I'm thinking, and I'm early to Lynch, this may change. I think that it's like pie crust. Like, it's got that nice flaky crust that we just mentioned. Mm-hmm. But it's almost as if the filling isn't pie, but it's like wet pie crust. <laughs> like it's just more crust. It's like a it's something familiar so what because you've already mean? made it past yeah. the pie crust, and you're going into more pie crust. So you're starting to work with it. it's like yeah, this is this is about the same, but at the same time, it's being done in a different way. So it's a and pie I don't pie. Know, I don't know how I feel about it, and I think that that's a lot of what I end up getting out okay. of the situation. So yes, it is a pie pie. David Lynch as a flavor, a slice of David Lynch is a pie pie. You know, that's entirely valid. <laughs> um, but what the, the pie that David Lynch gets at the diner, would you believe it, is a slice of cherry pie what? on a plate. What? And uh, he starts looking at this pie and contemplating it, really thinking, potentially thinking, potentially feeling. We don't know exactly what he's thinking. No, I But don't. he looks upon this pie and Not we get some audio. We got got some audio. Yes, we got do. Some audio, <laughs> uh, flashing lights, 
Flashing lights, which most nobly, I wanted to have something flashing on my end to flash in your eyes to help replicate it. Uh, my black light flashlight is dead, so I couldn't do it for this pod. So I'm just going to make cool little movements over here that are sudden to just disorient you. Professor, this might come as a surprise, but this podcast is an audio podcast. So the only one who's seeing you wave your arms right now like a dingus is me. <laughs> this is not enhancing the experience for the listener at all. I don't even know if it's doing anything for me. This is enhancing the experience for me. I hope you can hear the audio of his chair creaking is the only thing the audience is going to know about here. <laughs> they don't need to know. It's about us in the moment. And then we give that energy back to the audience. So David Keep Lynch going. is having a moment with his pie. And we're hearing these famous quotes from Twin Peaks playing. Even some from season two I thought was interesting. It's not just the David Lynch episodes. And won't you know it, even something wonderful and strange is quoted mm -hmm. inside there, mm -hmm. huh, wink, wink? And then at the table, suddenly, as if... By magic, we have two cast members and a crew member from the original production of Twin Peaks. Yep, yep. We have everyone's favorite individuals, Kale, Magkin, and JW. Entities otherwise known as Mae Chinamek, Kyle McLaughlin, and John Wentworth. Mae mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is Shelley Johnson, Kyle McLaughlin is Dale Cooper, and John Wentworth is not someone I guess I hear as much about in Twin Peaks discourse. Uh, mm -hmm. He was the post-production supervisor for I believe the entire original series. It didn't stay either way in the interview. Uh, I don't think he came back for the return. In fact, when I searched for his information, the Twin Peaks wiki doesn't even have an article for John Wentworth. He uh -huh. doesn't even have an article. So just glancing here, I, I don't know for sure if he was in the, the return or not. So the interview just jumps between David Lynch and these three. With David Lynch taking on the main role of leading the conversation, mm -hmm. there's a lot of times where Lynch will just say things and everyone just kind of nods and answers his questions and responds. Um, there's just kind of some random things that we want to highlight as we go through. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing we just just get out of the way, right? Just just to, just to talk about it. Uh, David Lynch and Machen Amek. Yep. We have commented about it when we were watching the show, the yep. way that Gordon Cole kisses Shelley Johnson. Yep. We speculated, we commented. Yep. This is one of the first times that you've seen those two talk to each other as people, not as actors. So my question for you is, what did you think of the interview's elements between David Lynch and Machen Amek? I'm going to say first and foremost... People's professionalism can still peek through. We can see a fair amount of a person through this, but we have to go as much into the spirit and words that people are mm -hmm. giving forward into the interview and trusting that amount. Right. So with that being said, it's almost as if we nosedive straight into that yeah. like, subject almost immediately. Like One of the first things David Lynch does is tell... Us and also Machen and Mech, just how stunningly beautiful she is. And Machen, it makes sure that we know that uh, she had a great time kissing uh, David Lynch. And there's like this super weird moment when they're talking later about how they each came to be involved in Twin Peaks. And Machen doesn't remember how exactly she got the role of Shelly, at least the way she does it in this interview. She mentions that she just remembers being in a hotel room with the Twin Peaks script and like learning it, but doesn't remember exactly how it came to be. And it's at this moment where David Lynch just makes this like side little comment as this conversation's happening where he says that it's a kind of a good thing she doesn't remember. And he says, quote, the pills must have worked, which you can interpret however you wish charitably. Yep. Um, that doesn't sound good to the outside out of context. Yep. Uh, I, I, I take that as a joke to mean that in the, in the joke, in the joke, <laughs> that he had drugged this young actor and brought her to a hotel room and her memory is foggy of that day and he is glad about it in the joke. Now, 
look, I don't, I don't know the exact relationship, at least within regards to the interview, Machen and definitely is acting as though her and David Lynch are like really good friends and that she truly enjoyed the time that she spent with him. Every single interview where David Lynch's name is brought up by anyone on any of these discs, it's positive. Everyone loves David Lynch and says he's great with actors. Which, mind you, again, is my comment whenever it comes down to where would we expect a negative interview inside of the special features. Now, mind you, it may be experience where everyone is very fond and enjoys their time with David Lynch. That mm-hmm. may very well be true. And he may be this very kindly soul and yeah. this honest soul as people are giving through. And that might just be the relationship that is with actors as opposed to it's that one time we saw that one guy get yelled at for... Uh, the use of puce, I would believe it was, for the material. Pumice. Pumice. I don't know what puce is. I don't think that's a thing, is it? Uh, uh, apparently, puce is a color of dark red or purple. Okay, brown. okay, that's fair enough. Use <laughs> the wrong shade for the curtains or something. It's hard to say. I mean, like, I think looking at this, like, 15 years later, however long it's been, that sort of joke wouldn't be said most likely on a camera right now. But at the same time, that might just be their type of banter that they have that joking relationship and they're comfortable with each other saying that Mm -hmm. it's just out of context on camera. It's a bit awkward Mm -hmm. when we don't have that context. Yep. It is something that like other pieces of David Lynch or someone amongst twin peaks doing something is very questionable in the Mm -hmm. modern day. That is something that we just kind of put it, had to put through a modern lens of scrutiny one way or another. So, but I'm Speaking sure that of beautiful women, that later on in the interviews. Speaking of beautiful women, Marilyn Monroe, largely considered by many people to be very beautiful. People are saying it. Citation needed, perhaps, but people are saying it. And <laughs> I, did, I, I didn't know this, or at least I didn't remember it, that uh, David Lynch, he first met Mark Frost because of one of Mark Frost's books. It was a book on Marilyn Monroe titled The Goddess. <laughs> and according to Lynch in this interview, they were going to write a screenplay together for a movie adaptation of that. I mm-hmm. think that's interesting because Lynch never, I don't, he might indirectly reference Marilyn Monroe, but it's definitely, even though it's not something I think of like explicitly referenced in his work very much, I can totally understand Lynch finding Marilyn Monroe interesting as a figure, given all of Lynch's fixations with Hollywood, the 1950s, and kind of portrayals of femininity in that concept. You just need to look at the cheek lady inside of the special room inside of Eraserhead, and I'm sure that people could have images of Marilyn Monroe come to mind. So it's an interesting meeting place for those two. It's an interesting meeting place. I I suppose I must have misheard because I thought it was just a screenplay. I wasn't sure if it was an adaptation. Well, a screenplay for the book. Uh, again, might have just misheard at that mm. moment. But regardless, uh, amongst that, we there were just future products that went through just because whatever the screenplay may have been mm-hmm. uh, did Fell not get through. picked up. Yep. But later on, they ended up having a, a little bit of a tussle on a few things, but eventually it came into a TV show that was going to become the Northwest Passage. And, and before that, I'm going to go back a little bit here. Time uh, One Saliva Bubble. Excuse you. Uh, if, yeah, you I know what you want. You watch the interviews. I can get you a napkin if you need to clean that up. <laughs> so um, before Twin Peaks, before Northwest Passage, uh, they were going to write a comedy, which turned into one saliva bubble mm-hmm. as a script. And according to David Lynch, that almost went. Mm-hmm. So we, we don't live in the world in which one saliva bubble happened, mm-hmm. but we we almost did. It's been the wonderful and strange one saliva bubble caught that day past. You know, you're talking about me needing a napkin, but it honestly sounds like you need it much more than I do, Professor. It sounds like that. That didn't work out. So we moved on to newer, brighter pastures, and that pasture happened to be 
Northwest Passage. Yeah, you don't know if it's brighter. Maybe One Saliva Bubble would have been the brightest of them all. It could have been. What if Twin Peaks is half as good as One Saliva Bubble would have been? Here's the thing. It didn't happen. Okay. That, that's the difference. Yeah. Okay? So that's why I don't believe in the One Saliva Bubble. It popped before it could even begin. Okay. Meanwhile, fine, fine, fine. Northwest Passage was going to take place in North Dakota. Very North well, Dakota. North Dakota. Uh, the old, like one of those states which does not pronounce its H. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because the bright pastures are the flat lands that we see all across it. <laughs> which which then makes sense why they shifted it over to Washington. Uh, David Lynch had made comments about the woods being important. Yep. <laughs> you don't really have them as much in the Dakotas. You can find them in patches. <laughs> in patches, but not necessarily the way that Washington State has them. Mm-hmm. So at, at first, their writing attempts began when they were uh, kind of separate from each other. They did phone calls back and forth through the writing. And David Lynch was in New York a lot at the time. Mark Frost was over in L.A., I believe. Mm-hmm. And it was another interview later with Mark Frost we'll get to where he kind of alluded to there being a strike happening around that time, too. So for various factors, the writing started off distance. But then once the climate changed and we had a situation where David Lynch could go back to L.A., they began writing in more earnest and ironed out those details Mm -hmm. sounds like rather quickly and rather clearly for what would become a pilot episode or for the European edition, a standalone movie with an ending. Yes. Uh, According to what is remembered over here, they had finished writing the script for the pilot around 10 o'clock one night. And then David Lynch had driven home and he read the script right away. He was, he was interested to read it you know, probably 11 o'clock at night, whenever he got home. And when he was done, he called up Mark Frost right back up on the phone again. And conveniently, uh, Mark Frost had also just finished reading the script again. And they both were just like, it's good. (laughs) It's really good. Yeah, And they were both really surprised and like happy about that, that their, their first draft of the script, at least really liked, they really liked it. Now, obviously changes probably happened from that Mm -hmm. point, but um, it seems like a lot of twin peaks had clicked rather quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, which I think is is true to the spirit of Twin Peaks that moments of impulse and emotion carry over even more than long-term planning <laughs> is kind of the sense we get, at least from a lot of these interviews, that I think if you kind of, if we're wondering, you know, about the production of Twin Peaks, I think this interview and a lot of other interviews here really go a long way to suggest that Twin Peaks was mostly improvised, like mostly made up on the spot. There's no indication that David Lynch and Mark Frost mapped out all of season one and season two in the get-go. They weren't even sure if they were going to get past a pilot. It seems like the series of events that have happened that have made Twin Peaks the way, like even to be and the way it is, have been a series of people running around with crates and bottles in the middle of a thunderstorm, trying to catch as much lightning as possible. And they did catch lightning in a bottle, one could argue. Yes. Uh, I I do feel like maybe David Lynch and Mark Frost knew the killer. Mm -hmm. That might have been known since the very beginning. That was something known from the beginning, and as we'll get to later, eventually had three people. That might have been the only thing that they knew from the beginning. (laughs) I'm not sure if any other details were planned out in advance. Yes. Because even, like, the Red Room was just kind of a, an accidental creation because they had to make that European ending. Which, and David Lynch in the interview like says, we cannot talk about why it's the duty <laughs> of the conversation. Like it'll bring up dark things. We don't want to get into right now. Yeah, no, he, he, he makes that language very, very clear. Lynch is and, a man of extremes in his speech. He is. He's not one for subtlety in his word choice. It sounds like whenever something does not quite go in a certain way or direction, Mm-hmm. Uh, though he does give a lot of liberty and strengths to people yeah. whenever he's got something on his own mind to sort of direct, that's something very hard to change. He's he's a very um, absolute person. Yes. In and fact, I, I think I got to respect that on some level. In fact, the absolution, we almost didn't have Machen 
yeah. uh, as part of the staff because David Lynch was very much uh, opposed. Uh, but it's honestly thanks to casting individuals uh-huh. such as Joanna, Joanna, who is multiply mentioned throughout yes. all the interviews um, for her fantastic work. So, hey, unsung heroes we'll never know about or don't know about except in light ways. But speaking of heroes, Kyle MacLachlan, Dale Cooper, we can't really imagine Twin Peaks without Kyle MacLachlan as Dale Cooper. At least I can't. I can. <laughs> I can't. Uh, <laughs> who would you cast as your next option? Oh, uh, just like I was just mentioning everything without Dale Cooper. Oh, and everything's just kind of stuck in its own ways as it has been for decades. So the the changing agent is gone. Yes, <laughs> agent. <laughs> um, in case anyone picked didn't pick up my subtle joke. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't pick it up. Let let me try. Thank you. I'm not going to edit out the pause of how long it took you to find the buttons. I think that's funnier to leave that in there. <laughs> okay. So um, Kyle MacLachlan, when he first like was offered this, you know, he'd worked with David Lynch when it came to Dune, which we've covered. Mm-hmm. And he also worked with Blue Velvet, which we're actually covering soon. Mm-hmm. But uh, this was the first role that he really, really clicked with. Mm-hmm. And at first he wasn't sure he was going to get it because he thought he was too young for the role. Yes. Which I kind of understand in one regard because this, this sort of, expert agent comes in with all these masterful skills. He expected someone older. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think the youth of him also played into his character as the show would progress, that sort of youthful energy and that on and off again, toying with relationship with Audrey, I think would have not sent exactly the same way had he been an older actor. And I think that there is something to say about someone who is more youthful, taking larger strides and even trying to like follow a certain lead to the point of even one's own personal doom could be something described on a youthful energy. If you sure. Will. So I, I think that it was a very fitting point of role. And I think that he did much better with that than inside of Dune. Uh, contrary. Wow. The very little dig there. I, I'm, I'm, I'm very... I don't blame McLaughlin for that. I, Cause like McLaughlin's first movie yeah. and what he was given. Yeah. I, I think it, the, the no. character's hard to get down. I'm not, I'm not denying that. I think you said I he didn't do as well. He I'm not going to blame well. him. I agree. Like here's the he thing. He was set up to fail. When, when, I, when I say that the seat, belts aren't safe inside this vehicle i understand there may have been like steps taken inside uh-huh. the production of this vehicle that made it uh, very unsafe and should not be driven but at the same time i'm still going to compliment when those seat belts are put in a better place well kyle mclaughlin wasn't sure if he was even worth buckling the seat belts because he wasn't sure they're going to be driving for too long he thought <laughs> the twin peaks might have been like a movie of the week but he didn't think it would get picked up. Mm-hmm. He didn't think we'd have a series to drive through metaphorically. Yes. He said, quote, no one is going to understand it. No one is going to appreciate it. Mm-hmm. So I, I was going to pose it as a question to you, but I don't know if there's really much to even ask here. Kay. You know, do you think that Kyle McLaughlin's suspicion that the network execs would not have taken up as a show? I mean, like if you were kind of in Kyle McLaughlin's position, having just done the pilot, I know it's been a while since you've seen it. Mm-hmm. Would you expect a show like that to get picked up? The hard part is is that we're in two drastically different climates during the time. Um, From what I do understand, Twin Peaks is much more different than the average television show upon its release. The closest thing would be soap operas. Inside of this this current climate, I think that there'd be like a big audience for something like Twin Peaks. I think that um, the overall just themes and the strange aspects of it is something that people would very much eat up. and Even the success of shows like Riverdale, I think, show that it's still around. (laughs) 
there's still that interest. Riverdale is an entity. No, I have legitimately considered like if I were to do like another like long form content podcast thing. There's so <laughs> much you because I I've heard of how weird Riverdale gets. Oh, season, you've heard. I've heard. You have not seen. I have not seen. Have you seen? Yeah, I have. I I've just watched like the Super Bunny Hop video <laughs> and like other people talking about it. Hey there, uh, podcasters, or you guys aren't the podcasters. We're the podcasters, <laughs> listeners. Uh, if you want a reversal on the subject, and if we ever get more time. And that's something you're interested in. Please email us at snakeeyedreams at gmail.com. Professor, we have so many things to cover still. As in one thing at a time, friends. Yes. Uh, (laughs) I've heard season one's pretty normal, but after that, it goes to town. I think we could have a lot of fun. So, um... McLaughlin, speaking more about Agent Cooper, he said that not only was it one of the roles he got most into, it was also one of the best introductions he's ever had to a role. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like the first thing they shot with him was the opening scene in the pilot. Mm -hmm. And the way they did it is they had the car being towed kind of like up a hill. And he had to do it really quickly because (laughs) they're about to hit a turn. So he only got like two takes on it. And that was enough though. Like he got it in those two takes. Mm -hmm. And basically as soon as he was, you know, talking into the tape recorder talking to diane reading off that list from the lamplight in lamplighter in one of those two um <laughs> that it just clicked into place and felt right and uh, kind of looking back on it he says that the entire character exists in that couple minute piece yes i think that one can most certainly lose themselves in driving which i'm very impressed whenever someone can act on their own no, I th- I think that if there's one point to sell people on the series, and especially the character Dale Cooper, it's those few m- minutes. I thoroughly yeah. agree with that. And then the last thing I guess I, I remember from this interview with Kyle McLaughlin is he talked very favorably and fondly of Michael Onkian, the yeah. actor for Sheriff Truman. Yeah. And um, he, he basically said that Michael Onkian was the most laid-back people he ever met, that mm-hmm. he's extremely easygoing, and, and I think... Uh, Machen jumped in saying he's very kind. And, you know, he, he talked about their both on-screen and off-screen chemistry, yeah. which I remember we were doing the special features last time. We saw that Super Bowl ad where we saw the different <laughs> different takes of that. We saw you the, really get that chemistry out of them in any moment they're together, even get, in the deleted scenes. We get it even like the one scene which we have no clue why it's there. That's an outtake, quote, quote, where they nearly kiss. So the, the, there's there's a lot that seems to be going between the two of them. And I'm glad that the chemistry seems to have also been off the camera as well. Oh, random question, Professor. Uh, random answer. What is your zodiac sign? I think it's Libra. You think it's Libra? I think it's Libra. Okay, I'm a Sagittarius, so I'm I have the same sign as a uh, Mage and a Mech. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. That's that's a that's a sign. Because for whatever reason. Just as smoothly as I just interrupted you with that question, David Lynch interrupts uh, the interview to ask Machen and Mech what her sign is. Yeah. And then later it gets looped back around and Kyle McLaughlin shares his sign. I can't remember if John Wentworth shared his, but... John Wentworth is a mystery. And then, like, David Lynch later talks about, like, his favorite numbers. He talked about, like, seven being one of his favorite numbers. My favorite, 17. And Machen says one of her favorite numbers, 17, and he stops her to say (laughs) 17's an eight. (laughs) <laughs> and I get what he means, right? One and seven. I get it. Eight. But he, like, stops her to correct her on this. Excuse me. It's it's very, very focused energy. I know that David Lynch does, like, the number of the day thing on YouTube. I don't pay attention to that. But I he's into numerology quite a bit. He's into it quite Astrology, a lot. numerology. For me, uh, when I just heard that, I didn't even think of it. It's like one plus seven. I was thinking to myself, yeah, it's like an eight out of ten. It's a, like, it's a really good number no. there, Mason. Let me tell you about seven. It's a one and a seven. It's an eight. You <laughs> add them together. 
It still came out as that energy, though. Okay, okay, okay. Fair enough. Fair like, enough. you did good, but I can do you better. Yeah, but he said eight's still pretty good, though. He has no problem with eight. Yeah, it's pretty I don't good. know what a bad number is. Like, I would assume six. Six is a reputation. Six is, uh, has a reputation, of the but it's also known as the perfect number. I don't know. To David Lynch, is it perfect? Is it perfect? Maybe David Lynch doesn't want perfect. Maybe he does not want it perfect. He wants really good. He wants not really good. Not perfect. Ah, too bad for him. I want better. Okay, okay. Um, if he wants to throw down with Machen, I'll throw down with David Lynch. We'll have this uh, whole entire... Let's, let's throw down with Machen a little bit here and talk <laughs> about her her side of things. She's the other actor in this interview that's focused on quite heavily. And um, we learn a little bit more about her backstory and how she came to Twin Peaks, other than the weird hotel situation. That, um, we yeah. found out that at age 16, she was emancipated, and she had to explain to David Lynch what that meant. So, again, in case any listeners aren't really sure, she basically... Um, was released from custody from her parents mm-hmm. that she was able to get a job as an adult at that point at age 16, moved to Hollywood, started auditioning for everything she could. Mm-hmm. And she started filming for Baywatch when that's when Twin Peaks kind of fell on her and Twin Peaks fell under her sounds way more violent. But uh, she also had explained what Baywatch was to David Lynch, which I think is very interesting. And there's, there's sort of this little reputation I've noticed that David Lynch may or may not watch a lot of things. I don't know. It's it's unclear to me because Baywatch is a bigger show than Twin Peaks in terms of like popularity, cultural knowledge. More people know what Baywatch is in general than Twin Peaks. I would say. I, I think now, even perhaps? back then, Baywatch was I, I pretty mean, big. I mean, no, that's what I'm getting at. Back yeah. then, yes. Now, yes. But I think that Twin Peaks has more staying power. It than has Baywatch. a more loyal following. Yes. I think the general awareness of what Baywatch is is greater, but the people who know Twin Peaks often know more about it. Mm-hmm. Um, my point, though, is, is he, she didn't know what Baywatch was, so she explained it's a beach show and went on from there. And at first, Machen Amek had auditioned for Donna's role, uh, for Laura Flynn Boyle's role as Donna, mm-hmm. not as Shelley. How do you think that, I mean, I, I know it's speculative, not your favorite thing, but do you think Machen Amek could have pulled off Donna? Maybe. I mean, we already had Moira Kelly do Donna, so we know Donna can have multiple actors. Different characters in different roles means that we're going to get different energies, which I do also feel with the filming of Twin Peaks could have led to different styles, different plot lines, and working off of the different strengths. Yeah. So when you tell me if she'd do well with Donna, well, I think that question almost proposes if she'd fit in Donna as a mold. I think that she'd just make a new Donna at that point, and I guess the answer to the question then is yes. And then there's also the question in, in, you know, correspondingly what would happen to Shelly like is yeah. Laura Flynn Boyle Shelly now or is a new actor everyone is playing Shelly <laughs> everyone else I I enjoy <laughs> I enjoy what Machen brings to Shelly enough that I would not want that experiment to be played out okay. I am I am quite content with that I, I'm a big Shelly fan so hmm. um and David Lynch is also a fan more of the actor I almost get that feeling we brought up some of the curious lines from earlier we touched upon the topic of the nicknames at the very beginning that Kyle McLaughlin gets called Kale because Dino De Laurentiis couldn't say the name correctly or yeah. accurately to the accent. In this case, like, it seems that, like, David Lynch, like, she had approached David Lynch because, like, uh, maybe he just doesn't know how to pronounce yeah, my name. Yeah, Ma- Machen had approached him. Yep. yep, and then, like, that's when David Lynch was like, yeah, of course I know that. I'm purposefully doing this. Yeah. And I will keep doing this despite the fact that you're bringing this up to me. So, yeah, she brings it up after, like, kind of being nervous to do it because, you know, David Lynch is a big-time director. You know, you know my name is pronounced uh, Machen Amek, right? And he's like, I know, Matchkin, and just continued with it. And she, again, she seems to be in the interview positive about that nickname, no concerns. I just, again, I, I just am thinking of the situation of someone 
kindly telling you how to pronounce their own name and you just insist on your own pronunciation anyway. There are layers. I think we could make a full podcast episode of just like the sheer amount of like tentative discomfort you and I have with most of like the things that come up between David Lynch and Machen. And it's not from Machen's point of view. Like I have nothing. (laughs) She didn't say anything weird. I had nothing with Machen at all that was rubbing me weird. Yep. So, uh, (laughs) and again, maybe this all could be like 100% true, 100% transparent. There's still, there's still that sort of itch I got that I got to be honest with myself on. And, and, um, she really does speak positively though. Uh, Machen Mech really speaks positive to Twin Peaks. She, she reflects that at the time she was so young when she did Twin Peaks that she hadn't really done a lot of Hollywood sets yet. And when she moved past Twin Peaks into more acting opportunities afterward, she got used to what is called like real Hollywood. And she noticed that it's just not the same thing. Like you don't see that kind of energy and sort of the experience on set of Twin Peaks in other shows. And I think that corresponds to what a lot of other actors and even directors were saying about the energy of twin peaks behind the scenes. Yeah. There was so much camaraderie among the actors and there was so much trust from David Lynch, not only the actors, but in the directors and writers to kind of carry on this torch that it was a lot more spontaneous and a lot more like a home for a lot of these people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, David Lynch is a big part of that comfort. I think for a lot of these actors. Yeah, no, I think that that's actually a common thread that we see. Uh, throughout just various productions whenever it comes down to, say, for example, the push to try to even make Eraserhead a thing Uh, or whenever it comes down to, like, David Lynch sort of, like, collecting actors from his previous experiences Mm -hmm. and bringing them aboard going forward just because it seems that there's a shared passion between them. Bringing them aboard? Yeah. Aboard, you mean? Yep, aboard. He's not bringing them a a pig. They're probably a pig, too. Okay. If you had a story in which if someone was brought a pig as a good, like, sort of parting gift between the two, would you be surprised? I mean, David Lynch did do a whole ad campaign sort of advocating for Laura Dern to win awards using a cow. So, so I rest he my has case. a bit of a record with this, with this idea. <laughs> he has a of, record of livestock. with livestock, yes. Yeah. Um, he's also had a record of talking in numerous interviews and things we've quoted in the past about his feelings on the revealing of Laura Palmer's killer. There's a bit of a broken record, one could argue. I'm going to still consistently play that broken record. If we keep hearing that broken record, I will continue to play my broken record to have a battle of the record players, so, I suppose. I want to I wanna just dump a giant David Lynch quote. Uh, I am going to do my attempt at a David Lynch uh, impersonation as usual. It's going to be about as bad as usual, probably. I, I believe in you. I believe okay, in you. Okay, thank you. Thank I, you. I, I think so first things first, got to so summon him back up. Angelo Badalamenti, and not not that high, not that nasally. Angelo Badalamenti, and Angelo Badalamenti, Angelo Badalamenti. Every time this happens, uh-huh. I, I'm just afraid that there's going to be a Beetlejuice response. <laughs> I don't know the man. I don't know what he looks like. Maybe it's already happened. So it's a great thing to have the pilot and the first season and the second season all together, the whole story, and it's very very good. The thing that kills me is that the murder of Laura Palmer was never supposed to be solved. And the reason is this beautiful little goose. And the little goose is laying golden eggs. Why would you kill this little goose? It's unreal. It's a huge sadness. A huge sadness. And an absurdity that that ever happened. If you translate that pressure is a need to know. 
And that need to know is what draws you in. Anyway, that's what happened. Anyway, it's that kind of thing. But there was room for so many other mysteries. But that mystery was sacred and held the other ones. It was the tree and the other ones were the branches. And like I just said, it's a sadness. Quote, I understand where he's coming from. I sympathize where he's coming from. I think that there is a root that does sort of like tug at the sort of mental strings that if Dolor Palmer's killer was always a mystery, maybe that could be whispered and speculated at all times. I'm a big fan of works that are heavily set in speculation with questions left completely unanswered. Mm -hmm. Some of my favorite media comes with that. Um, but I don't believe that that is the entire goose. I think yeah. that relying on that as the entire goose blinds people to the side of the egg. I hate I, to say I agree with you. <laughs> you hate to say <laughs> you agree with me. It hurts me to say I agree with you, it, Unplugged Professor. It hurts you. Like, yes. it, it's, it's, we, can't, we can't, like, have any... It's coming closer to the holidays. This yes. is about a time of unity. Yes. It's, I don't like the holidays. <laughs> Bombug. Bombombug. I rooted for the Grinch as a kid. <laughs> I was scared. Big Grinch fan. My my mother had to drag me out of the Grinch film uh, just because <laughs> I cried so much as he wrapped someone in plastic, actually. They deserved it. No, seriously. He like, doesn't do that to people who don't deserve it. <laughs> Look, if the Grinch has wrapped you in plastic, wrapped in plastic, <laughs> the, the Grinch killed Laura Palmer. That's the answer. <laughs> but what I'm getting at well, is you see, that... see, Laura Palmer. <laughs> we had some glimpses into like playing with the idea that we do know the killer in the few episodes mm -hmm. with Leland Palmer that I think were great. And I would not sacrifice anything in the world for fire walk with me. Fire yep. walk with me was an insane experience that I can't say that I can really count off the top. Of my, head. so that's your favorite twin peaks thing, right? It's so far, so far. And it's also my your favorite, favorite David Lynch thing. So far, yes. So far, which I think is notable because mm -hmm. as we've noticed earlier, you oftentimes had a tendency to like the, the thing that came after. Mm -hmm. um, I can't remember, did we do Fire Walk With Me before or after The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer? Fire Walk With Me was after The Secret Diary. Okay, so it was the last Twin Peaks thing we encountered, but we've seen movies since then. They haven't replaced it for you yet. No. So intriguing, is it not? It, perhaps so. There, there's a amount of investment that I've gained from the characters. Mm -hmm. And for the amount that has been revealed between the books and what we've seen from Laura Palmer and the experience of the extended family that have full, like very much connected me towards characters such as her. It, it, it's something in which I can see myself in the old days of her podcasts being very... I still lightly in there, but more heavily stuck in the ways of the eldritch horror known as Laura Palmer, more <laughs> than the human being as Laura Palmer. I I think um, also you, you extend a little bit into the golden goose metaphor. I'll extend his tree metaphor as well. <laughs> if the tree was the mystery of who could Laura Palmer and the branches other mysteries, you can always plant more trees. It's not I, just I, that, And I, I think they already had trees growing. I think they could have like, watered them and grew those trees into <laughs> other trees. I feel like they already had other interesting ideas that it wasn't like everything was in this one stock. Mm -hmm. I think they diversified their investments. But I don't think they needed to just put everything into this one mystery. And then when it didn't work out, give up on it. There's more than just the one tree of North Dakota. 
that you could branch out to in this forest of opportunity. In this forest of Washington. <laughs> um, I also like how after David Lynch says this very long thing, he says more about this than anything else in that interview. Everyone's kind of just silent for a little while. And then Kyle McLaughlin, you know, kind of nods his head and says, you know, you can't change those core mysteries. And then Lynch very emphatically says, no, like just very directly. No. <laughs> and then they just move on from that. Yeah. It's clearly like, this is a triggering thing for David Lynch. The other people didn't have as much to say about it. Mm -hmm. uh, I do not know how Machen, Amek and Kyle McLaughlin really feel about that. Okay. I, I, I don't know just from this interview alone, if they're entirely in agreement or not. I think Mark Frost would agree with David Lynch for a lot of these things, mm -hmm. but it is a question. And you've pointed out before, Fire Walk With Me wouldn't exist if they hadn't revealed this. I mean, something else might exist instead, but not Fire Walk With Me. And David Lynch really liked Fire Walk With Me. So, mm -hmm. you know, if we're going to take the egg idea, he, he broke a few eggs, sure, but he made an omelet. <laughs> and, you know, he, when life gives you eggs, you make, you make lemonade. <laughs> you know? Uh, speaking of eggs and lemonade, John Wentworth, uh, a very unknown person to the Twin Peaks community, not known apparently enough for a Twin Peaks wiki article. Um, he had previously worked with David Lynch on Blue Velvet, and he later got a call to, he thinks from Lynch, to work on sound recording for the Twin Peaks pilot. Mm -hmm. That then grew into an opportunity to be the production uh, manager, post-production manager. And the way he kind of explained it, he just didn't sleep which, Professor, I think you can relate to. I can relate to a lot. He, he would work, like, constantly, it sounds like, and into the, the primarily in the wee hours of the night. And if it wasn't for recording sound effects for, like, the pilot, it was all the editing and changes that needed to be made after the fact. I love how JW, especially throughout, like, speaking about his roles and the opportunities that he's done with the work with Twin Peaks and how much went into Twin Peaks itself. Every time David Lynch just like specifically said, and what did you do? And what did you do? It seemed like he was just more so like very vague about it in which like, uh, well, I worked hard. I did hard work. <laughs> and I almost wonder if it's because he did too many things. Yeah. Like I feel like this guy wore a lot of hats mm -hmm. and you mentioned unsung heroes earlier. I think that that's very true that not only does David Lynch and Mark Frost get almost all the credit, despite there being other writers and other directors, I also think that even outside of the writers and directors, you have people like Joanna in the casting and you have people here like John in the post-production mm -hmm. who made Twin Peaks what it was behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. They don't show up in front of or behind the camera. Yeah. They're nowhere near the camera, <laughs> but they, they did so much to make Twin Peaks what it is. Mm -hmm. One could say the same about Pat Cokewell. Yes, uh, meanwhile, when we had the one slice of David Lynch, we now have 17 pieces of pie ready for us with uh, Pat Cokewell, who was, during the time uh, of the shooting of Twin Peaks, Twin Peaks uh, Season 2 and Fire Walk With Me, I almost called it Twin Peaks 2, Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> anyway, uh, owned the Marty, the Marty Cafe, which was the Double R Diner. Mm -hmm. And this interview was conducted for or at least around the annual Twin Peaks Fan Festival over in North Bend, this time on August 20th, 2000. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as of speaking, it's an over 20-year-old interview. Um, I know the diner's under new ownership now. And she recounted her experiences of when she was first asked if she could uh, have the diner be loaned out to these people. Yeah. And her experiences during the show's runtime and afterward. Um, and so, like, 
some random things came up in there. Originally, she was going to remodel the place, like, right around the time. No, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. We want it exactly how it yes. is. Yes, they wanted it exactly how it is. Uh, interestingly enough, she, when she thinks of the pies, she would make pies for the crew, but she doesn't remember making cherry pies for them mainly. <laughs> she made banana pies uh-huh. and peanut butter chocolate pie, mm-hmm. which, I'll be honest, those sound more my style than a cherry pie. No, absolutely. Same thing here. Like cherry pie, I will treat myself to from time to time, but like a nice little like peanut butter pie. Ooh, that sounds just It's like it's so hard good. because I if I ever say I like cream pies, it has a connotation now because that wording can be used for other things. But the problem is I don't know how oh, else to refer to the them. It's the sex things. It's the sex things. So I'm trying to think of another I like pies that are cream based. It sounds more wordy. It sounds more suspicious more than anything. But I like coconut cream and banana cream uh-huh. and chocolate cream. Here to hear everyone. Uh, I'm glad that you enjoy your cream pies, Khalil. Oh uh, no! <laughs> don't tell them that. Um, but and you know what David, what uh, what Kyle McLaughlin didn't enjoy though eating a bajillion cherry pies. Yeah, apparently, like, there's a few things with this. For one, there was a point where, like, there was a little party planned in which, like, Kyle will be attending, so mm-hmm. there were people who were just playing. He's like, you know what? We should get some cherry pies to remind me, you know what, of, like, Twin Peaks. This will be so great. This will be so exciting. And when it came around, it's like, Kyle McLaughlin is just like, I had so many of those pies. No. I I'm done. Do I'm out of this. I'm done. Good. Mm. Uh, so <laughs> that that's a bit humorous. I also like the idea that there were multiple cases in which, like, if they wanted pie during the production, they just had to write it off. Uh, yeah. Like, and they say, would just kind of tally it for later. Yep. Yep. There's uh, was like this nice. Uh, what I recall from the interview when I saw it was like there was also an old lady that ended up working alongside to try to help make. Yeah, they had to the hire pies. extra help to make yep, this work. It, it could not just rely on the one lady. And they normally didn't even sell whole pie. Like, they obviously sold slices, but they weren't, like, mainly known for their pie. But as, like, things like Twin Peaks got more popular, they were just selling, like, so much pie and so much People coffee. People were standing outside in line. Like, for, like, I think she said, like, 45 minutes 20. or so. 20? Okay. Which I, is not that I thought, bad. Was, I thought it was higher. But also, you gotta, but, you know, think this is a pretty small-town diner. This isn't, like used to that sort of traffic. Yeah, no, there was like businesses complaining the fact that, hey, um, the parkings, no. Yep, yep. It's like, eh, But that's also where the business is coming from. And honestly, like from her experiences uh, with like people directly working alongside it, apparently this is another instance where she does go into how David was actually a calm, easygoing person. Mm-hmm. Uh, an outside account that was just making pies. I don't know what she'd gain from like, yeah. no one's going to interview me anymore. Oh no. But it Well, seems and like- the actors too, she had a lot of praise. For the she cast she had praise for the cast and crew. There was just like, David was just someone who ended up working really kindly with people, never raised his voice from mm-hmm. her instances because she would just hang around because, hey, it's her diner. Nobody brought plaster of Paris instead of, yeah. <laughs> so, um, no, that was... It, it, I it, think I said the, the wrong thing earlier. It's plaster of Paris was the one that guy got yelled about. Uh, t- so <laughs> if you were typing your angry email or YouTube comment, I fixed it. I realized I was wrong. So type your angry email and or comments to say you got it too late. And you can send that to us at snakeeyedreams at gmail.com or, or tweet at us at snakeeyedreams1, the you. numeral one, as in one more mistake, Khalil, and you're out. <laughs> You'd been gone a long time ago. I'd be gone <laughs> even more before. Hello, welcome to the Twin Peaks podcast. Nobody's here. <laughs> if this interview... Uh, percolates interest in your brain you can find it on disc five of the zda collection but you know what's also on disc five in the zda collection i do 
Good. Moving on. <laughs> uh, the Mark Frost interview with Wrapped in Plastic. This Same is... disc. This is a curious thing. So we got a lot of David Lynch from the other one. This is the majority of the Mark Frost content as far as Z-Day collection interviews. Now, for those who do not know of Wrapped in Plastic who are checking our podcast, could you go into more detail on who Wrapped in Plastic I, are? I admit... Um, being kind of a more recent fan, I was not there as a Twin Peaks fan in the year 2001 when this interview happened. I think you were a baby around I then. was in first grade, um, <laughs> to reveal my age a little bit here. Um, so I, I was not part of this culture and climate around. From what I gather, as kind of just someone passively in the background now, Wrapped in Plastic was like the big fan magazine for Twin Peaks and did a lot of work to keep interest going within the fan community in an age mm -hmm. that was like early internet. Um, I know that like there's still magazines now that, that do a lot of work. I know that both, like, I know for sure John Thorne, I follow him on Twitter. I know he still talks about Twin Peaks and does things involving Twin Peaks, but mm -hmm. just like hugely important figures in the fan community. Now, as far as these individuals go who are handling the interview, Craig Miller and John Thorne, yeah. uh, what is their involvement in Wrapped in Plastic? I believe they're the creators. They run it. It is their magazine. You believe? You I, know that. I yes. I think that it says it in the interview. If we're wrong, you know our email and our Twitter. <laughs> we look forward to talking to you, Craig Miller and John I'm pretty sure they're the founders, creators, owners, all that sort of stuff. We know that you may or may not be left-handed, Craig Miller. Uh, and we, we know we what you know. went along with, John Thorne. We know. We know. Uh, this interview is shot super weird. Um, so it is on... It's a phone interview. It's a phone interview. And we cut between two locations. Between two cameras. Between two cameras. And it's a, a static camera at the table of John Thorne and Craig Miller uh -huh. where they are on their old, like, 2001 cord phones yes. talking and, 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 and having the conversation. Yes. And then we'll cut back to a, like, probably handheld camera, right, that is over in the Mark Frost realm of the hotel. So it looks like he's in the dining room of the hotel. He may be with someone at the time. Oh, well, there's a hotel room, I thought. Oh, there were, like, glasses in the table, so maybe oh. if it's, like, super fancy to the point that you've got a dining table in your hotel. I mean, it's Mark Frost. Sign I don't know how rich Mark Frost is. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> so, uh, Either way, in the hotel. Regardless, is what seems to be potentially a mountain camera at the start, but someone, like, picks up the camera. And makes bold choices with it. And, like, runs up. If you ever wanted to run up the arms of Mark Frost, hmm, let me tell you, there is that shot. And it's, it is just it's as, very strange. It, it sounds just as I made it sound. There's a lot of weird, like, Dutch angle close-up shots where you're, like, looking above. Like, if you imagine talking to Mark Frost, but you're standing right next to him, but slowly behind him, looking down over him, over mm -hmm. his shoulder at his face. You get shots like that. Congratulations. And, it, and then you go on your knees and sort of like tilt your head a little. You got your shot right I, it there. It felt like they were almost too conscious. They didn't want to make like the, the camera work too flat. So they overcompensated a little bit with the camera work and made it way too much movement in different angles for what just needed to be a... <laughs> it could have just put the camera on a tripod and called it good. But instead they did this. There, There's an aloofness uh, inside of this because I'm sure that there would be some people that would be like, oh wait, no, you got to keep it still. I'm trying to do something professional. Yeah. But no, it seems like whoever he was with, that person, they were just having a lot of fun And they with were them. fine with it. And yeah, Mark Frost seems to be very good with it. So maybe, like, who knows? Like, it might have been between the questions and so on. It's like, hey, excuse me, um, bar staff, could you please pick up that camera and catch me at all sorts of angles and wave the cameras around? Mm -hmm. Whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. And, and I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, I think everything Mark Frost says here 
lines up with what David Lynch has said pretty closely. So far, I I can't think of anything between that these interviews so far. Yeah, like they're yeah. pretty similar here. So talking about the early experiences, I don't know a Mark Frost voice the way I did the David Lynch. Arguably, I don't even do a David Lynch voice. I'm not sure if I'm doing one at all. <laughs> I'm doing something. Uh, but the Mark Frost, I won't even attempt to do because I don't even know what that sounds like. Mm-hmm. Quote. We just described a kind of murder mystery loosely set in a small town in the Pacific Northwest. And that was about all we had at that point. We wanted it to have the feel of a kind of 1950s, lush, Peyton Place-style melodrama. And David made some strange motions with his hands as he described the wind. And they seemed to like that. Um, I love the the mention of the David Lynch hand gestures because we know exactly which one it is. Um, not the one you're doing right now at me, professor. That is, that is the reach out and grab you. That's not what we're doing. He was doing the thing with his fingers. He always does in the interviews where he kind of like moves them around, you know, it's hard to explain this over audio. <laughs> anyway, I can picture what David Lynch was doing. And I like to believe Mark Frost is like eloquently explaining these ideas. And David Lynch is just like, there's a wind. And he's just moving his hands. And the executives are like, wow, okay. <laughs> or maybe that's just like what he was like giving off in his motions like me, in which like I'm desperately trying to reach for the water that's closest yeah. to you. But no one's giving him the water. So everyone just assumes that's what he's thinking. Maybe. Give David Lynch the water. Maybe. Um, so interesting to know that the idea of the 1950s element was already in there from the beginning. I think that's pretty interesting. And despite that, though, Mark Frost uh, doesn't wish it had been set in the 50s. He said that we always felt it should be in the present, but should have a kind of timeless feel as small towns in America often do and put it in a place where time has sort of stood still for a while. What are your thoughts on that? My thoughts are, Khalil, push the water closest to me because I really need some water right now. Oh, my God. <laughs> I really need it. The water has been successfully pushed. I would, Don't drown. I was I was trying to swim in the air to get you to Wait, I thought it. you were just doing a bit. That no, was real? That was real. Okay, but I was talking about hand gestures. <laughs> and you, I didn't know you were trying to clue me in on that. I thought you were doing a bit. Me and David Lynch, we, we need people to understand. We just need the water. Wow. Yikes. Anyway, so what did you think of Mark Frost saying that they wanted it to be in the present, but have a timeless feel like a small town does and a place that is time has stood still for a while? I think that's that those sort of like almost contradictory sort of like uses of place as well as feel are the things that have made Twin Peaks last for so long. Um, I mm-hmm. think that as far as items go, when it comes to Twin Peaks, there's very rare items that anyone would ever say, wait a second, this isn't what's going on here. Mom, Dad, whatever is this strange thing, it doesn't follow any certain trends. It just is a place that people are just living isolated from another location and are very close to one another Mm -hmm. for good and ill. So I, I think that they do accomplish that, and especially with the newer perspective with Dale Cooper popping in. I think the emphasis on a place where time has sort of stood still is very interesting. Um, And that sort of tacit assumption that I think could be teased out from that, that the people of Twin Peaks, especially those in the book house who believe they're fighting this evil of the woods and succeeding, they believe, I think that there was goodness in Twin Peaks, as Jean Reno says, there was goodness in Twin Peaks. Life is better there in some way. But 
when something outside comes in, that is where that negative change comes into the town, which you and I have spoke at length while watching the show that there was already great evil within Twin Peaks, not just in the woods, but in the town. I would say that a lot of distrust, a lot of disloyalty, a lot of crime, a lot of corruption look no further than the secret diary of Laura Palmer. I must say that whenever it comes to that, it's the acknowledgement of the evil. I think yeah. that some people may confuse good as a sense of blindness to the sense of purity that everything is fine. When you shine a spotlight on the gross, disgusting underbelly, it's going to look pretty scary, but it was already there under. the wor- Like if <laughs> Twin Peaks is just basically a household in which no one's going in the basement and it's been molding in there and it's become a problem it, it, over time. But as soon as someone opens the door and points out the problem, problem well then now it's a problem. professor remember that pie i mentioned with the the maggots inside no no i this don't kind of what i mean no it's bad that's a bad pie okay whatever whatever um, <laughs> unlike my pie made of pie yeah <laughs> quality pie. i guess i'd rather have that than the maggot pie i guess <laughs> but whatever to each their own so frost talking about kyle mclaughlin he says that it wasn't like they already had the role in mind when they made cooper but he was the first actor cast. Yes. So arguably one of the most important roles was the first one cast. Yep. And the last member cast was Michael Onkian for Sheriff Truman. Now, this is something very interesting for certain listeners who have become aware of things involving David Lynch that we haven't gotten to yet. Hint, hint. But they were very close to casting Robert Forster for Sheriff Truman back during the original run of Twin Peaks. Okay. I can't say much more at this time about that, but that is very interesting. That's sure. For those who know, it's very interesting that Robert Forrester almost was Sheriff Truman. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I'm in the lost point here, so I don't know. I I don't know much about Robert Forrester, so I won't, I guess I can't really talk about him in general, but there is a thing that we'll get to eventually involving that. Exciting. Uh, Honestly, just um, put a pin in this just, professor for like a while, just a while for an undetermined while, <laughs> the un- because you'll look while. back, you'll look back and you will get a mighty guffaw out of the situation. Wow, I can't wait to fi- figure this out in the middle of the pages of the secret agent Dale Cooper book. I don't know. It could be anywhere at this Speaking point. Speaking continuing of uh, secret agent Dale Cooper, Frost agrees after being prompted in the interview questioning that he does think of Agent Cooper as a modern Sherlock Holmes. Uh, this was kind of a lead-in question where Craig Miller and John Thorne were talking about how Mark Frost is a big fan of Sherlock Holmes. Okay. Apparently from his other work. So, um, yeah, he admits that that's the case, but it's like Sherlock Holmes, if they cranked up the intuition meter like higher... <laughs> way up to the highest. And then you start mixing in things with Tibetan Buddhism, dream analysis, etc. And he says, quote, he became a kind of Freudian, Jungian, Holmesian detective. Do you think that's a pretty accurate way to describe Dale Cooper? I'd say kind of. Dale Cooper is most certainly someone that explores certain concepts mm-hmm. for a bit. But I'm trying to think of like, general deductive reasoning that like we as the audience can follow along with most of it we can't follow along with it's very random seeming it's sometimes random sometimes we just already have all the pieces in front of us but the way that dale cooper sometimes just like figures things out well and also when i think of freudian jungian like dream analysis i think of someone who like decodes cryptic imagery in their dreams and then comes up with ideas about it no literally in his dream he was told who killed laura palmer and, and then forgot remember. about it the next day. 
But it's okay because, I mean, that's what happens with dreams and usual. Yeah, you but, know, Maddie died because of this. But there is uh, a faith that he puts into reasoning such as, like, throwing things at bottles off in the distance. Yeah. Still not going to let go of that, the fact so. that he had that dream and didn't write it down. Oh, that's, that's <laughs> a problem. Why would you write it down? Obviously, you'd remember until you don't. I, you can't I even tell over the phone? Fault. Like, no, you tell Sheriff Truman right away over the phone. I, I have that same fault myself. I, I get overconfident in what I can remember. Yeah, and, and then blood on your hands. Yep. Blood. How many young women have died because you didn't write down your dreams, Professor? Uh, I wasn't young women. It was mostly Khalil. Oh, no. Yeah, it's okay. It's okay. Oh, no. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> Frost also admits that the show was a bit of an endurance test for viewers, and partly that was on purpose, that he wrote it and involved with writing, obviously, with Lynch, wrote it almost like a novel, page by page, yeah. kind of as it went along. And, you know, he admitted that you have to have a certain amount of patience and endurance to follow 30, 40 character story threads all at the same time. Yeah. Um, and I think, I don't usually think of Twin Peaks as that hard to follow. I know you're pretty bad with names, but you still could follow it. It took a little while to get the names down. Yeah. But, like... I, I don't mean to use you as, like, the worst example, but I mean, like, I think if you can follow it, I think it's not that bad. You hear it here, <laughs> folks. If you, I, can, if you can follow, oh, Twin Peaks, you're better than me. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying that I think it's not that hard of a show to follow. Maybe I'm coming at it from a place of, I don't know. I don't know if bias is not the word, but maybe I'm just lucky and it's not that hard for me. And for other people, it's a sincere challenge. I should but get, I don't think of the show as an endurance test usually. I should get you like a cushion for your seat so you can sit taller than me. So you See, can what do you think? Do you think of the show as an endurance test? The show, it really depends on the camp of thought that you're going into mm -hmm. with it. I think that if there's someone who is looking for something that's more traditional, more comfortable, uh, this is something in which will not fix that need. Meanwhile, if there's some people who want to try to satisfy an itch for something different, something new, and something strange, mm -hmm. I think that Twin Peaks will most certainly offer that. And to note again, from what a lot of the cast members and individuals yeah. involved said, it seems that there was a point of stagnation that was happening in media yeah. that Twin Peaks ended up offering that newness. And for some people, it did fly over their heads, but for a lot of people, it really stuck. I also will say to remove some of those cushions under my high seat right now, uh, I am someone who, when I watch The Sopranos for the first time, and so far the only time, I'll probably see it again someday, but when I watched The Sopranos with my friend, uh, I had a really tough time following it. Mm -hmm. I had a really tough time keeping track of all the characters in The Sopranos. And I think it's, for me, the thing that makes Twin Peaks easy to follow is that they're very dramatic characters. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not going to get Nadine confused with her storyline versus like Audrey. Like they're just such different characters in terms of not just like their, their storylines, but their clothing, their personalities. They're like, even their music is certain associations. The age is something notable too. The age. Well, that goes into appearances. Yeah. But I, I generally just don't get, okay, for that matter, I wouldn't get Audrey and Donna mixed up. There we go. James and Bobby. One. I know names maybe get confused, but I know who they are when they're on screen. I'm not like yeah. getting them mixed up because they're different per They're different people. Now, we also have to question this on, like we are in the modern day of like watching this in binge-worthy content. And this is like what, close to back 40 episodes that we experienced? But also we, 
with our podcasting, we still had a break a lot of times between our episode viewing. We did have to have a break, but just imagine like sometimes like month long yeah. breaks or like like half a year long breaks. Then you call the Lucy shoot. hotline. You get the information you need. <laughs> Easy peasy. Easy peasy. <laughs> uh, we've talked a lot over the time about David Lynch's need for control. It's one of the things that's come up a lot in researching for the movies we've talked about so far. Mm -hmm. And I thought what Mark Frost said about control was pretty interesting. Okay. So he said, quote, we were given an unprecedented level of control. That was the ground rules that we wanted to agree to before we started. And he kind of said that like he was telling the network to take your control issues and back away. Yeah, it seems like the the studio was like all good with everything. It's just the network was the thing that. Well, they kind of owned this. They were the studio pretty much. They, he, Mark Frost did make a comment. It was Mark that, Frost Productions. It was Mark Frost Productions, but still, that is a studio run by other individuals. Yeah. In which he said the studio was still okay with. Yeah. So that means that there were other heads, other people that worked alongside them and said that's fine. And it, basically, he thinks that they were desperate enough that they took the offer that they normally wouldn't have. <laughs> and they caught them on that day. And because of that, they managed to wrangle a lot of control. And I think that, again, David Lynch had so much control, and Mark Frost did too. But the thing they didn't have control over, ultimately, that they had that pressure was the reveal of Laura Palmer's killer. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I think Twin Peaks didn't have to buckle that much to pressure. Mm. I don't know. David Lynch, I feel like if, if there's something else that they had to cave on, I think David Lynch would complain about it. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like David Lynch would bring it up. Mm -hmm. But I don't know of anything else off the top of my head that the network made them change. There's Other than the Laura Palmer part. It is either, it is just something that is so titanic to him that yeah. everything is dwarfed in comparison, not even need to be brought up because yes. that's just another snowball example being like the requirements of like the European European ending. Right. Ending. Don't even talk about the darkness. Uh-huh. Or there may have just been very limited issues like that. Not, not as much to worry about because at that point they were even starting to go their separate ways past the Laura Palmer. And situation. there's a, there's a certain cynicism out of Mark Frost in this interview where he, he mourns the idea or dreads the idea if Twin Peaks had been made later on in like the early 2000s, what he thought might have happened to it, that he wouldn't have been able to create the same kind of show. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know if you would say that is still the case now. When they brought the Twin Peaks back for the return, they did it on Showtime. They did do it on cable TV. So mm -hmm. I almost wonder if that's part of their want for control. Showtime was able to give them more control over what they were doing than say ABC or NBC now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he, he talks about how they didn't align themselves with, as he called them, one of the powerful television producing factories. So it's sort of a mechanism in which things are just churned out. Twin Peaks wasn't like that. And we got more context on that alternate ending we were talking about, where that was pressure from their foreign distributor. And the only reason they went with the foreign distributor, again, is for control. They mm -hmm. were able to cut costs and make it more manageable if they chose that foreign distributor. And one of the stipulations of that agreement is we want to sell this as a standalone movie in Europe, tack on an ending for our version, please. Which again <laughs> is an interesting thought. And out of that limitation, out of that confrontation, out of that, whatever rotation you want to call it. Yes. We got the red room, yes. which I'm happy about. I'm happy to praise be to the Europeans. I, I don't think I don't think that there's anyone that sort of walks away from, like, Twin Peaks not, like, remembering the Red Room. It is such a 
heavily uh, is visceral the right word yeah. like it is a oh, heavily yeah. visceral sort of like image that just sticks out that's again wholly unique from anything that you re- really even just generally see and it's not even that it's like pretty simple the idea it is. takes a common floor pattern, a common color of curtain, and- Chev- chevron, black, white, and then red. But there's something like striking working with these like differences with these colors, yeah. and with this sort of like very heavy absence with just a limited furniture inside the room that just makes you kind of like you can easily visualize it in your head and could probably sketch it. A floor I can pattern. hear it. You can hear it mm-hmm. uh, under those sycamore trees. Under the sycamore trees. Uh, also of note is. Frost spoke pretty openly about his thought process regarding the season one finale, Mm -hmm. which I thought was pretty funny. So he said, quote, well, I had two objectives in mind when I wrote the last episode of the first season. Because again, Frost was the writer for that last episode of the first season. Yes. One was, he said, create as many cliffhangers as humanly possible within a 43-minute story. (laughs) On one hand, to kind of upset and play with the convention that the nighttime soap had fallen in at that point. And number two to exhort or extort ABC to bring us back for a second season. Yep. So that then they would get all the answers to those questions and unresolved stories that we left hanging. Yes. And then it was just a question of making that work stylistically. Mm -hmm. I I think that's interesting for a couple reasons. So one is that, and they kind of go together. One is that the season one ending, if the series like had actually ended after one season, if it had been a limited run of like the pilot and six episodes and was done, how completely unsatisfying that would be in terms of closure that it ends with Dale Cooper getting shot and rolled to credits and we're done. If that was all of twin peaks, if that was the last thing with twin peaks. Mm -hmm. And then the thing that I find also interesting alongside that is thinking about the season two finale, which David Lynch had written. And you know, the question kind of lingering, you know, was David Lynch also trying to do the same thing? Was he also trying to extort another season out of ABC? Well, it's, the questions that do get proposed and people might want answers for, obviously there was one answer that would not, they would not want to pass. And David Lynch wanted to almost add more questions from the sound a bit. So maybe, maybe some things would have been solved along the way. And maybe there could be that little bit of intention to just like try to lead people on to get them more and more intrigued. I'm hesitant to say completely, though. And, like, while both the season one and season two finale are ambiguous, open-ended, they don't resolve all the plot lines, and both leave Dale Cooper in a perilous position of danger, um, I think season two is a much better ending of a series. Now, obviously, there's more time in season two to develop things, um, but I think what's interesting is that the season one ending had wrapped up quite a few of the stories. The main mystery would have been, you know, Dale Cooper. I think Audrey at this point had been in perilous circumstances as well. She was also the one in the One-Eyed Jacks at that time. Mm -hmm. To me, that would have felt like an unfinished show. Whereas the season two ending, and again, this is maybe just my own bias because I love the season two ending. Yeah. I feel like rather than just being an unfinished ending, it feels like it's going out of its way to blow things up. Like it is making mysteries and unresolved endings that didn't need to be there. It's going out of its way to shoot closure in the face. It's almost as if I would even argue that there's a lot. There's obviously like simple questions like, did these people survive? But I do think that it's almost pushing away from questionable conventions and more so focuses on 
just destruction. And it's almost I, as if I respect tearing that. things apart. I, I think that the season one ending, if that had been all of Twin Peaks, that'd be a pretty lame ending in my opinion. It, it'd be like a simple few thoughts here and there and like there could be points of speculation for people, but I do think that that would have been unsatisfying as well. I like the episode as a season one finale, but as a series finale, not so much. <laughs> season two, and, again, and I just want to make this clear because I love, seri- I love seasons two finale and I don't want to be ambiguous about what the difference is because yeah. they have things in common. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, still a good episode. Still a good episode. I keep getting caught whether or not I should make the reference how's or where's Annie. I keep mixing up the questions. It's, so I'm just it's gonna, how's Annie. I, I'm just going to stick with, no, we're, we're not going to do that anymore. I'm just going to go with what's Annie. What's no, Annie? No, no. How's Annie? What's Annie? When's Annie? When is when Annie? Is Annie? That's, a fair, that's Annie? actually probably a fair question at this point. Because <laughs> in uh, Fire Walkabee, she was doing a little bit of teleporting. Time, time porting. Hey, you know what I want to teleport through right now? An interactive grid. Oh, okay. Okay. So, listener, I, 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 want, I want to propose firsthand that the idea that they went with... Professor, I don't think is, we've known each other long enough to propose... <laughs> you might want to, you know, take it steady for Every a little bit longer. Every listener, I'm hoping, will say I do. Uh, and then we can just be a big old happy family, podcast and all. Welcome to the cult of the professor. Uh, I shall welcome you all in into my loving arms as long as wedding gifts are abound. Anyway. Oh, you would look like a cult leader in a white robe. I'm looking at you right now and I'm thinking if you uh-huh. wore, you could uh-huh. like a pull a Jared Leto. Anyway, <laughs> the grid itself. This seven. Disc seven. I like the, where they're going with it because by spoken word, it sounds like a fun idea. Now, this is something that kind of needs to be seen to be believed, but we'll do our best to verbally explain this grid. This is a grid for interviews. Okay. You yeah. have a list of individuals and there's a lot of there's people a lot. that get interviewed. Like over a dozen. And there are. I think. Three different sections of their divided interview that goes into the origins. Uh, like how uh, they got in the show. The production, the show. Yeah. And the legacy going forward. So separating each piece of this and you just wanting to hear those specific points for each of these individual actors. I, I understand we're like sitting inside of a room. That sounds like a fun idea to like separate those and give people the freedom of choice. When you actually see it, it looks like a horrifying like little game of like battleship done in the yeah, cyberpunk Yeah, on the Y way. axis are all the different actors and on the X axis to the right of the actor's like picture and name you got the are wrong axes. the origin production X- and legacy. X axis are the actors. Y axis are the protection uh, legacy and so on. Up, down is Y. That's what I said. The Y is the actors. No, the X is the actors. No, because they're going up and down. The actors are up and down. But their grids are going from side to side. You choose their options going horizontal, not vertical. Anyway... I, in whatever, any case, this, this, this is where this is why this is why it's specifically there is a help option there's on a help the grid. Option. There's in capital letters H E L P on the upper right hand corner of this grid. If you're making special features for a DVD and your layout is so confusing, you have to offer a help button. <laughs> maybe, like, maybe, maybe, maybe. There's, there's some things we got to question with the design of it. I know it's the future, guys. I know that there's possibilities that we can. Yeah. It's just after the and, dust settles. And I don't know for sure, but I, I suspect that this was a feature on a season two DVD. 
um, quite a while ago. The interviews are maybe like early, early 2000s. Not that much later. They're not like recent. The main thing that tips me off, though, is that these seem to be made around the same time as like a different set of director interviews. Like it's a similar like green, greenish lighting on the people. I don't know how to explain it. And those interviews only talk about season two. Hmm. Like they only have like, you know, say Tim Hunter, director of these episodes, but it only shows the season two episodes they directed, even if they also directed a season one episode. Now, mind you, the uh, crew uh, and the cast, they have separate things. The cast are the ones that get the grid. Yeah. The crew members are the ones that get like their names and you just and they're about as long that's the thing like they're not very long interviews none of these and like even when you add the origin production and legacy you don't spend that much time with each of these actors whoever made this grid i thank you because it's a like it may not be for the reasons you may have expected at first and this does look like the fun option but there's just a like an enjoyable absurdity to open up this menu and just seeing all these dots of options that you're trying to like calculate where they are instead of pressing the play all button. So it's easier for like you or I to go back to a specific part to reference something. Sure. But for the average owner of the, it's not practical. (laughs) If you're impractical and doing a weird podcast, sure. But if you're practical, this was the setup for everyone to do podcasts. Yes. So, so first person featured, uh, is Kyle McLaughlin, right? Special agent Dale Cooper. And, um, you know, he talks about his experiences uh, with Dune when he first met David Lynch. He said he found him charming and friendly, but McLaughlin remembers that he would bother David Lynch all the time with questions. Mm-hmm. He would just keep asking Lynch questions because, you know, it's his first time doing a movie. I'm sure McLaughlin wanted to get everything right, and he's the lead character. Got to make sure that, you know, you're not making a mistake what the director wants. And uh, McLaughlin would say he was good for about five or six minutes, and then he'd start doodling on a piece of paper, and I knew that I had lost him, it's, which I find to be a very funny image. It is a very funny image. It's it, it's this little area that almost feels contradictory to yes. the statements that were just made. Now, now and, David, I have a very important series of questions to ask you today. Why, well, yes, Kale, come into my office. Okay, so, so David, I'm kind of wondering about Paul Atreides. Um, what are you drawing there, David? Oh, it's me as a dolphin inside of a tuxedo. Oh, it's a very nice drawing, David. Anyway, I was wondering about Paul Atreides. Um, there's this scene where I'm... Who's the other person there with you on the dolphin? Oh, uh, that actually is myself again, but this time I am a bowl of pudding. Uh, yes, you go ahead and go with that. Uh, uh, anyway, the, 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 the blue space sponges, the space sponges from Dune. I just want to know like what oh, they... Oh, no, that's a great idea. I should include those. Etc. Etc. <laughs> so it, it, it does make me wonder great scenarios. It's feels like an SNL skit. Yes. And as a response to how David Lynch would seemingly ignore him a lot of the times, McLaughlin started developing a style when working with Lynch that he would just kind of figure it out for himself. Like imagine what he thinks it should be. And it turns out that Lynch was cool with that. Um, Partly because Lynch trusts the actors a lot, but also I think that Kyle McLaughlin more than almost anyone taps into the same frequencies of Lynch. Mm -hmm. They naturally vibe, you know? I know. <laughs> Please go on. <laughs> and um, he he also kind of speculated that the reason why Gordon Cole is in Twin Peaks is that David Lynch so much loved the world of Twin Peaks that he just like couldn't stay out of it. Like he had to insert himself into the world of Twin Peaks. And look, anyone who's ever written fan fiction with a self-insert OC, 
they understand how David Lynch felt. Gordon Cole is the self-insert OC. Yeah, I gotta wonder if that's, like, how that story came about. I know that they mention there may have been a sort of, like, desire to be, a, like, a part of that world, and that might be specifically, a like, a David Lynch-style things. We've seen him make cameos. Inside Smaller of his cameos, yeah. Inside of his um, media beforehand. I, I'm just kind of curious since it's, it was specifically him and I don't think that we've seen or likely will see any sort of Mark Frost pop up and saying, hello, I'm... Well, Mark Frost was in Twin Peaks. Oh, so he, was he more than Fark Most? He was just the news reporter for like a random little split moment. Oh, I didn't realize that. He was on the that. TV, yeah. He was like a news guy. Okay, it was a very small role. I, I didn't realize there were more channels other than Invent, Invitation to Love. So The Invitation to Love channel. <laughs> yes. That was canceled in season two. <laughs> Rest in peace. And I'm sure this brought great sadness to Shelly Johnson. Because mm-hmm. I know she was a regular watcher of Invitation to Love. As a sort of form of escapism, perhaps, from Leo Johnson, her mm-hmm. maniac husband. Mm-hmm. Maniac husband sounds like it's like a wacky adventure. I should say horrifying drug lord abusive husband. That's the, that's the funny part when it does come to like the interviews and when Shelly Johnson does bring up someone such as Eric DeRay, Eric DeRay. It's the fact that apparently he's the sweetest guy. Yeah. He, he was he's, giggling before all the shoots and yep. throwing her off. Yep. So, um, just like imagine like someone just sort of like laughing around as he's like swinging like a soap yeah. menacingly. It but, sometimes makes a worse image, but on the other hand, it doesn't seem like that was the case on set. No, she wasn't actually scared of this person. <laughs> like they were friends. It sounds like they got along well. Uh, and she also, again, spoke positively about David Lynch. This time, David Lynch wasn't around, so, it, you know, she she didn't have to say that in front of him. But she said that as David Lynch... As far as Lynch, we know. As far as we... He's always around. Um, he was, like, putting little cards up behind the camera of what to say. Um, no, she said that David Lynch is, quote, like an open channel to the creative forces that come down. So it's sort of a mystical explanation of his abilities. Mm. He, you, In other words, you could say that he is, like, one who can detect the the waves of like a radio wave or like the electricity in the air. He could like mm-hmm. feel it and receive it and and then shoot that electric electricity out of his hand like Emperor Palpatine from Star Wars. <laughs> that is the David Lynch story. Yes. Sherilyn Fenn, uh, the actor for Audrey, has a really interesting section here too. Um, I, I kind of wish there'd been more interviews of her just sprinkled throughout because she's one of the more vocally opinionated members of the cast from what I can tell. When she doesn't like something, she makes it very, very clear. And I think that makes her one of the most um, kind of interesting for me to listen to because she doesn't really mix words. She mm-hmm. just says what's on her mind. Mm-hmm. So at first when she got Audrey as a character, you know, you think back to Audrey in the pilot, she's really not there that much in the pilot. Yeah, it's She a- becomes so much more later in season one but from the beginning, not as much there. So she was surprised when the character blossomed out to a stronger character later on and really liked the character of Audrey. Yeah, as far as her agent and her were concerned, like, yeah, we actually were thinking about, uh, like, instead of this character, we think that she'll be Audrey. It's like, flip, 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 flip. There is no Audrey. Yeah, barely even in the story. But I don't know if it's, I I almost want to believe if Sherilyn Fenn might have been advocating for the character behind the scenes. She never really said that she did that, but she seems like someone who might have done that. I don't know. I like to believe in a world in which Audrey became more of a thing because Sherilyn Fenn pushed for it. Uh, Why don't you believe in like David Lynch and Mark Frost there? Because she wasn't that interesting of a character in the pilot, but then she (laughs) became so much more. Uh, She wasn't bad in the pilot, but she wasn't, you know, Audrey. Mm -hmm. Um... And there was this whole debacle with the Miss Twin Peaks pageant, which I think I mentioned before in the in the season two look back that Audrey like hated that, like the actor hated that, um, yes. Sherilyn Fenn. And 
she she basically just felt like strutting around in a bunch of leotards was embarrassing, like not something she wanted to do. Um, I don't know if it was on like feminist grounds, moral grounds, whatever. She just thought it didn't really feel right for Twin Peaks. And it also didn't feel right for Audrey. Mm-hmm. So she only had Audrey really show up to give the speech. Yeah. Which I'm glad she was there for the speech because I do think the speech was a good moment for her character and for the, for that moment in the pageant. But mm-hmm. now that it's been brought up, yeah, she's not dancing with the others during the rehearsal or during the actual show itself. Mm-hmm. And uh, she admits during this time that she's probably being difficult, but she says it's okay since David didn't mind. <laughs> and um, She also had just like interesting insights for David Lynch and yes. which like how he would end up encouraging people to go into these dark places yes. and how things like Twin Peaks for all that it had, like the reason why it even had that staying power is that because at the bottom of it, it wasn't just random. There was a bot at the bottom of it. There was a truth behind it. It was was soul based Mm -hmm. as she said, based on the soul and not weird for the sake of being weird, Mm -hmm. which I think it was a low key dig at other directors. She never named names, but there's this sense that she feels not every director understood that. Yeah. That David Lynch of the directors of twin peaks. That was one she enjoyed working with the most. Excellent. One of the ones at least how I read what she was saying. Mm-hmm. Is that how you read it as well? I think so. I, I, I it, it's something that's still I'm percolating inside my head at the moment, but I, I think that's a fair. And assessment. it's this idea of too many cooks in the kitchen is what she was kind of worried about. She says that the reason twin peaks probably succeeded is because they were able to mostly stay true to that vision and not have too many cooks in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. I feel like almost on the opposite end of Sherilyn Fenn's like vocal opinionated nature is uh, Dana Ashbrook. He just seems like a casual guy. At least that's my impression of him. He was seeming like he's having a good time. Mm-hmm. Um, the way he's talking about this, he, he kind of just went with the flow on the set. He brought up this weird situation with this guy squeaking his shoe on the floor to create a certain sound effect, talking about sort of the improvisational nature yes. of Twin Peaks in the production, um, which, which reminds me, um, in that first interview where David Lynch was in the cafe with Machen Emek and Kyle MacLachlan and John Wentworth, there was something in there involving kind of the idea of accidents on the set involving Bob or Frank Silva, the actor for Bob. No, there's no accidents, Khalil. I'm so, sorry. I was going to ask, no... would you be willing to kind of elucidate that matter? <laughs> uh, it seems that David Lynch is heavily defensive on like the ideas of like accidents that sort of happen Mm-hmm. around the set it, it seems like there are a series of circumstances that come up maybe even coincidences especially when like there's points where he'll see like frank sort of like working around certain points inside of the set as like humorous things are going along he'll grab them and like put them into a different spot and there's like this mood maybe he's going for he's trying to evoke but there's a point where after grabbing him putting him into a certain spot and after they shoot a scene with um and with a scene with grace Zabriskie. Um, where she does panic, there's a point where someone does yell cut. It's like, ah, well, it looks like overall, it we got like his head inside the shot. Um, yeah, a guy wasn't supposed to be in the reflection, but he ended up being there. But actually, David Lynch ended up having some like connection with that and decided, yes, that this is going to work. David Lynch, this still is an accident. This still well, was like beyond intention. What he corrected, I'll, I'll I'll defend David Lynch a little bit here. Go. What he was doing is he was saying that that wasn't the first thing. Okay. That the first thing um, wasn't really an accident, that Bob had already been an idea before that point. Okay. Because this was a scene, wasn't a scene in the show, but it was a scene in real life where Frank Silva had accidentally gotten like locked in like a little room on the set and someone made a comment about it. And David Lynch heard 
that idea of Frank Silva being like locked in someplace. And that sprang forth the idea of, wait, Frank Silva in the Laura Palmer room, it gave him an idea. I wouldn't call that a, a set accident the way that like someone was accidentally in a frame they weren't supposed to be in. Mm -hmm. It was just an off-screen thing made him think about it and he wrote it in. So like mm -hmm. the idea of Frank Silva being Bob was pre-planned sort of. <laughs> Definitely like semi-improvised yes. because of a set thing that happened. But I think David Lynch's reaction of saying, no, it wasn't the mirror thing first. Okay. I think that's what he was getting at. Okay. He was very direct about it. Yes. David Lynch, again, an absolute man. He, 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 not a, not in the sense that he's if, like, what does that mean? He's Cleo? an absolutist. He's an, he's that's, I didn't mean it. Like he's absolutely, it's uh -huh. not like a body spray scent. Uh -huh. I mean, like, uh -huh. I'm just saying that he is uh -huh. someone who believes in absolutes. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. Yeah. But. So. Going back to the with, interview with, at hand. With a lack of absolutes, um, I do find that Dana Ashbrook's sort of like going into yeah. this environment, say, for example, situation similar to David Lynch, similar to this, on those squeaky floors, on those squeaky points. Squeaky shoes. Yes. Um, that the rules were just sort of out the door, as he put it. Yep. Um, and that sort of environment, again, seems to be a somewhat of a rarity, if you will. I also thought it was interesting that he, uh, Dana Ashbrook, thought that they might go with the Audrey-Bobby relationship. I, th I think Like, he didn't know what they were doing, <laughs> so he wasn't sure if they were going to do it or not. Uh, I think that as far as, like, him just sort of, like, being on set seemed to just be, like, a series of visceral experiences for him. Like, when he was, like, brought in, and turns out he actually was, like, actually knew Eric DeRay during the time. Yep. Isn't that funny? Bobby and Leo knowing each other beforehand, right? uh, being cast together. But regardless, um, being brought into this environment and uh, being brought before, like, David Lynch as well as Mark Frost in this, like, serious little interview uh, and even being noted that, hey, um, honestly, like, as far as this goes, Bobby doesn't really smile. It, he doesn't really even smile. He's like, I'll never smile again. <laughs> I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> so, you can tell he just wanted the role. He just really wanted the role. And I do, uh, I, I think that there is like that lack of smiley Bobby that happens mm -hmm. throughout. But when he can like branch out and get a little bit of that cockiness emotion in, I think that's where Bobby shines. I think that original idea that Bobby doesn't smile. Um, this was mentioned in the interview, just to yes. clarify that when he got the role, he was told Bobby doesn't smile. And I think he said David Lynch had said that. That is interesting because Bobby definitely does smile. I just mm -hmm. think that the earlier idea of Bobby from like the pilot and from the first season in general, mm -hmm. he doesn't open up until later. Yes. That the original uh, original Bobby wasn't someone who would show the smiling. But when you get into season two, when you start developing things between him and Shelley and later with even Audrey, mm -hmm. um, you do see different sides, even a tender side with his father. I would say that even like points um, all the way to the movie, if you will, uh, Fire Walk With Me, I think the most memorable part someone can take from uh, Dana's performances is when like Laura is mm. trying to change and manipulate him. And then he just like turns around his mood and emotions and is like dancing backwards, getting toward into the, the school, mood, right? Early music. on. Yep. Yep. Kisses that sweet, sweet little portrait. And it, it, there's a lot of fun that can go into a performance even when it has to be more serious at times. I also liked how the grid and positioning here had Gary Hirschberger right after Dana Ashbrook. Uh, for Gary, whatever reason. For whatever reason, uh, the actor for Mike Nelson. So we all know the reason. Um, I thought that was a really good 
just, you know, kind of natural order here. We don't mm-hmm. see a lot of Gary Hirschberger in the interview, so I, I was glad to have some of that. No, I'm glad that we see Gary. Uh, I still kind of wish that we did see some Eric DeRay, but still, mm-hmm. regardless, mm-hmm. Uh, I'm glad to see um, a pr- really good standout performance throughout season two. I also thought it was really funny that Gary Hirschberger thought he was auditioning for the person he called the Weepy Sheriff. And it's like when they were making this interview and like post-production, they realized that it's not clear who he's talking about. He never says the name. So they just put the picture of Andy on the screen. <laughs> when he says the Weepy Sheriff, they put Andy on the screen to clarify. He thought he was auditioning for Andy. And to clarify to listeners who are similar to myself and are very bad with like names to faces, this would be the actor that would be Snake. Yes. If you will. So just imagine Snake. Oh, so you're saying the- people wouldn't know Mike Nelson? <laughs> I'm saying that I have a hard time with names. So you know him as Snake more than Mike Nelson. I know him as Snake more than Mike Nelson. That's yes. interesting. Okay. Regardless, Snake, Mike Nelson, Gary, however you want to put forward, was trying to put him in a position for Andy. And I, I, I kind of want to see him in that more goofy sort of spotlight. But at the same time, I think that he does come off well as the... I, I think it's just the I fact can. that I wouldn't want Andy recast. Yeah. I, I think Andy is so clearly fit for the, the role. I think Andy is Andy. I, His name's not Andy, <laughs> but you know what I mean. I think that there were some of the most interesting insights throughout the interviews with uh, Gary, especially whenever it comes to like describing David Lynch as a gentleman. Mm-hmm. And not to mention that, but when he goes into like how he's like trying to communicate to you, it, yeah. it gets a little bit wild. So, so there's that scene early on with Mike and Bobby at the jail, at the at the sheriff's jail, and they're barking at James in the prison cells, right? Well, the way that David Lynch tried to explain that to Gary Hershberger was something along the lines of, like, he, like, walked up to him, and he asked, you know, have you ever been to a zoo before? And Gary Hershberger's like, yeah. You ever been to see the monkeys? Yeah, probably. You ever heard the monkeys barking? Um, No. But, but I think I understand the idea. <laughs> I just I just like this sort of gradual process of you ever ever been to a zoo before as, as kind of a lead in is, is very interesting. I never would have thought monkeys in, in the cell. I've always thought of like barking like a dog. Mm-hmm. But the marky the the marky the, the monkey barking <laughs> thing is interesting. The marky of the monkeys. The marky mark and the funky bunch. Speaking of something really funky. Mm-hmm. James Marshall. Know. Honestly, AKA James Hurley. Here's the thing. Here's here's the absolute Look, we've, like ordeal. We, myself and Khalil, have gone back and forth uh, against like mostly the against James. Uh, James as Marshall. a character. Like as as far as like James Hurley, as far as the character goes, uh, it's been constantly like focusing on that sort of like what he's been given. Right. We mostly criticize the writing. Yes. I got to say is that this whole entire amount of energy through this interview of James Marshall blew me away. It is more energy than he probably had for half of season two combined. There, there is an ecstaticness and there is a passion that I see with this person that I would thoroughly want to see him in other things. Like this, this is an actor that gets me excited just to see how engaged he gets, especially in a role such as James Hurley. So genuinely that that's just very exciting. And this is another one too, where if it hadn't been for the casting agent, he might not have been in the show Yeah, because by his own admission, he's not very good at headshots Mm -hmm. for like photos. Mm -hmm. And apparently the photo headshot that David Lynch had received was enough that Lynch looked at the picture and was like, no, not this guy (laughs) enough times that he just had to keep being advocated for. But then when Lynch actually met him, he's like, Oh, you don't look like your picture. 
And then they got along just fine and he got the role. Lynch tends to cast on feel as well. We kind of get out of this interview. Yeah, we haven't explicitly stated it, but they didn't do normal interviews in the sense of like auditions. For the most part, it sounds like, especially the pilot actors, the ones from the very beginning of the series, they were brought in and had a conversation. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like they went up there and they performed those characters all the time. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes it just was an initial sit down with Mark Frost and David Lynch and just see what your personality is like. Yeah. And another sort of highlight with uh, David Lynch's directing style, or at the very least on James Marshall's account, uh, there's just a point in which, like, he's having this hard time just, like, trying to push an overall scene, if you will, and, like, David Lynch apparently could tell he was getting frustrated. So, basically, David Lynch just kind of, like, goes up to James and kind of, like, squats close to him and ends up uh, doing something very similar, apparently, to that suitcase scene in Eraserhead, like, where that person, like, the actor was trying Mm -hmm. to constantly pull the suitcase out and just, like, took so much time and just like is it was in this weird position for so long that apparently it's just like light in the mood all around between him between the crew members that after that instance and david lynch just sort of like okay go for it uh it, it, the scene went amazingly so mm-hmm. I, I like to believe that was not his intent yeah <laughs> i like to believe david lynch was trying to communicate something specific but everyone else just took it as a lighthearted comedy moment. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. Either way, it worked. Either way, it works. Uh, again, like from the way that he describes this and just the way that he sort of speaks, uh, I, honestly, I'd love to work with David. <laughs> That's not David Lynch. Maybe David Lynch, but James. Marshall. Marshall. Yes. It was James Hurley. It was James Hurley. That's the thing that trips me up. <laughs> well, uh, one that you probably may uh, recognize as being different than their character is David Duchovny. Yeah. Playing the character in Twin Peaks of DEA agent Bryson. Yeah. Who, for most of Twin Peaks season two, when we see this character, they are presenting in feminine attire mm-hmm. with the feminine hair. And we went back and forth throughout watching it, whether or not to classify this character as transgender, a cross-dresser, ambiguous gender usage here. Um Duchovny specifically refers to the character as a transvestite, which is a term that obviously has fallen out of usage. Um, so I, at least for what I can tell, I think Duchovny viewed the character as transgender, not a man wearing woman's clothing, but someone who identifies as a woman. In the uh, perspective of the time, it feels like this, this interview I would say is probably the most uncomfortable for me. It's, and that's also because this character carries those potential connotations. It ca- the character does. And it does seem that it's not too much separated from like potential viewpoints again of the time from this individual yeah. actor. So it was played a little bit for laughs when the interview like the way he refers to it he brings up more almost the comedy of being this type of character he he ended up saying that his audition if i'm not mistaken was something more comical and he then sort of like takes the situation and dials back the comedy to be more serious because from his words he thinks that that brings out more of the humor in this situation in which i think that it's more important to bring out the human and this is this is the tough part about i think denise bryson as a character is that It is neither black nor white in the sense that I don't think it is a fully positive or fully realized portrayal of a transgender character. Mm -hmm. I think that the reactions of characters like Hawk, especially, they play toward a sort of comedy almost, at least for my viewing, everyone's different. If Mm -hmm. If you viewed this character and thought there was nothing at all bad with it at all, 
that's perfectly fine. Uh, for me, though, I felt like some of the characters were playing it off like a joke in the show, okay. and I couldn't tell if I was meant to find it funny. I didn't find it funny, but I couldn't tell if the show was trying to get me to think it's funny. And if I think of the average person watching TV in, like, 1990, 1991, seeing this on TV, it honestly might have felt like another weird character in Twin Peaks mm -hmm. because the show has characters like Nadine, who it plays for laughs a lot of times, even when it maybe shouldn't. Because mm -hmm. Nadine is another complicated case because Nadine is played as a comedy character, a B-plot for most of season two, but she is one of the most tragic plot lines in the whole entire series. Absolutely. And her character is full of sadness and pain that's real, and the town just kind of shrugs and says, we're going to play pretend and let her go to high school again. I think that, again, I do enjoy... There are points of absurdity which I do question and I do criticize whenever it comes to either characters, but I still think it is heavily important to have like bit of succumbity with tragedy. And that's the hard part is I don't want to wave my finger and say everything's problematic when that's part of the charm in of itself is the willingness to be silly, to be a little irreverent. It's just, is it being silly or irreverent at anyone's expense? Yes. Um, we're both big fans and we talk a lot about in our channel of the series Revolutionary Girl Utsuna. And that's a show that makes jokes and light of very serious characters and very serious personal situations. Yes. There's characters who start off as like physically abusive jerk boyfriends, like the most archetypal, like chauvinistic, toxic male you can find. But as the series goes on, they start becoming a joke character and we both find them funny. Not only we joke. both find him funny, despite the fact that at the same time we are aware if this was a real person, they'd be horrible. But again, they're to goes, how they behave to women. But again, going into that, um, obviously, I'd say that we're most likely referencing Sionji. Oh, of course, and, <laughs> he's not only a joke character, but again, it's mixing comedy with tragedy. It's, there it's are willing to look which, at characters as three dimensional. Yes, it's willing to look around these characters, um, what they are about what they are willing to do and not only play with the humor of them, but also play with the overall problems with them as well. I, I just, I feel like with Denise and with Nadine, you know, obviously Nadine is more of the mental health side. Uh, same with Johnny. Um, and then also with Denise, we have a character who is representing a very marginalized group, especially in the nineties, mm -hmm. you know, people who were transgender far more likely to be victims of crime and, and violence be the victims of those situations yes. and not really having a public voice. Denise Bryson was one of the first transgender characters. A lot of people would have experienced very much. And so. for like a young transgender person or someone who hadn't yet awakened to their identity is Denise Bryson a good portrayal? Yes and no. And I don't think it's black and white. There's also that question right there. I think that it also brings up a good idea. Um, using again, Sionji. <laughs> And for, if you don't know example. the show, that's fine. That's fine. It's just the most stereotypical toxic meal you can think of. Yes. Copy and paste, you got the idea. Yes. Um, a lot of it, again, is the problems with themselves. Meanwhile, these other issues that are coming with uh, characters, which can be pointed to criticism, are like problems with the society around. For one mm -hmm. end, I don't think Nadine is getting the proper help that she really needs. I think that there are some issues with the treatment, but that's just how things usually go whenever it comes to Jacoby in the field. Yeah. And there's also the overall problems that come with the environment for uh, those who are sort of like in a different uh, commonality of identity, if you will, mm -hmm. similar to how a person such as Denise Bryson would be in the world that we would know around the 90s when Twin Peaks was around. So, yes, it is most certainly complicated yeah and i just want to say because we, we you know we talk about these characters a lot i just want to say unequivocally like again we are both in favor of seeing more characters in fiction that are 
nuanced and fully fleshed out characters from a variety of backgrounds. We want to mm-hmm. see more characters from groups that we normally don't see on TV. Yes. Um, the fact that they had a very prominent Native American character in the form of Hawk is really good. Yes. Um, and Denise Bryson, for all the elements we might find a little bit unsure about and maybe get a little nervous about, I'm glad that there was a transgender character on the show at all. And that was a rather bold move at the time. Unfortunately, it's bold. I wish it was normal, but um, I just want to say unequivocally, like we are in favor of seeing characters from these backgrounds because that's real for a lot of people. That's their lives. And I want to see media that's reflective of real people and representing them. Yes. So we just want to see media get better over time. And I think culturally we've moved past where Twin Peaks was with Denise. Yes. So I think that at the time, it was pretty progressive, but now we're looking back. There's things that could have been better. And Nadine is a whole can of worms in that regard because Nadine's one of my favorite characters from season two. Um, but I say that knowing that if this was a real person, like really tragic portrayal of of mental health in terms of uh, her honestly being a victim in a lot of the circumstances. Mm-hmm. But anyway, back to the interview here. <laughs> uh, company reveals that the role of Denise Bryson had originally been written for another actor named James Spader. And Duchovny only got really that role because he was so desperate to act. He wasn't even really a big Twin Peaks fan, he said. He just wanted a role really, really badly. Mm -hmm. And that is what he found with Denise. Mm -hmm. And it was his first time he'd ever done drag before for a role. And when he auditioned, he originally says he did it in a more stereotypical, like, feminine voice, trying to play into the sort of feminine character. Um, But as they worked on him with the show, as they worked on his hair, clothing. I say he for the actor. Um, He took on a more less is more approach. Yes. Where when he did the vocals and mannerisms, he did not play into the feminine as much. Mm -hmm. Which, again, I don't think it's good or bad that he did it that way. (laughs) I think there's both. Um, Because he kind of made it seem like that'd be funnier to him if he didn't play into too feminine. Like there was something to him that I think he thought it would be more effective in a comedy way to be more masculine while wearing the women's clothing. I find that to be kind of uncomfortable Mm -hmm. to make it a comedy character, but also what was he being told this character was, was Denise Bryson meant to be a comedy character? I don't know what they were trying to do. Again, it's not to say that people cannot like act in a way that can find humor. No, you can have a comedy character as transgender. Again, it's just, are you making fun of, that aspect of their personality in life. Mm -hmm. Are you making fun of their status as a transgender person, Mm -hmm. who they are, or are you just making a transgender character funny? Mm -hmm. And I, that line is hard to draw. Mm -hmm. Now I know that you're not always the best with like remembering faces and and voices Mm -hmm. of actors to their characters. Mm -hmm. My guess would be out of all of the actors, the one you'd probably have the best chance of recognizing right away would be Kimmy Robertson as Lucy Moran because of her voice, Mm. because her voice in real life is very similar to the voice we hear for Lucy. I think it's because there's not many voices similar in Twin Peaks to it. And she has retained that. So you could tell it was her, right? I could tell it was her. Good, good. Not that it's bad if you don't. It sounds like you're trying to give me a trophy for like, (laughs) sorry, I'm sorry. I don't mean to be, I don't mean to do it that way to you. Uh, Um, but no, I, I think it's it is notable that she is one of the most immediately recognizable, like iconic faces and voices of Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I also really enjoyed her sense of humor in the interview. She like compared meeting Frost and Lynch in this sort of dark room 
with them at this table and there's a light hanging above over it and mm-hmm. she compared it to like a conspiracy meeting. Yeah, and the fact that inside of this like instance, like instead of like being very focused and just like trying to heavily push herself into the interview and just like try to step around glass to make sure that like nothing goes wrong with it. She just went all in ham to make sure that she could ask as many questions yes. as her and her friends would ever want from David Lynch Which, because good for her. this was her opportunity. Good for you, Kimmy Roberts. Yeah, no, she she saw an opportunity and she took it. Also, and, also, her her wording, she's describing like she loved working with David Lynch because he'd work with you and he would quote, kind of like uh, how do you do a Lucy voice? I won't. I don't know. It's a Lucy sound. It's a series of Lucy's. I'll try. Okay. And quote, kind of like reach his arm into your mouth and down into your stomach and pull out a scene. Oh, here it is. It's all slimy. That's that's my attempt at a Lucy voice. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, it's like, I can't do it justice. It's fine. There's there's a lot more quickness to it, I would say, and especially on like how she's like trying to describe like going deep into it, pulling it out. I was like, okay, well we're all slimy, but we're gonna work with this. I, I love that uh, analogy. It is of someone reaching into your mouth and grabbing something from your stomach. It sounds like someone who has checked out David Lynch's prior works before. Right? Right. And is very ecstatic about it. And uh, also, I like the, uh, I never thought about it, but the element of Miss Twin Peaks, the pageant where. Yeah, she's told like, yeah, you know what? You're talented. Let, let, let's let like show that talent, if you will. And she's actually approached by it. So she prepares a routine yep. uh, inside the background and gets that all sorts of ready, plays it. Uh, I, I forget the name of the music she prepares mm-hmm. it from. Something called McKnife. I don't know. Maybe I'll make something called McKnife and then we'll pretend it's that. Sequel to Macbeth. Yes. <laughs> McKnife. It's like when he gets one of his arms off and it's a blade now. Okay. You, you do know the ending of Macbeth, right? Uh, I'm assuming everyone dies. Knowing Shakespeare. <laughs> Knowing Shakespeare. Look, I've read Hamlet. I haven't read Macbeth. Okay. Sue me. Okay, very well. Lawsuit will be coming soon to a theater near you. Anyway, uh, yeah, she's preparing this, and she gets ready to show it off, and she's going to uh, perform it in front of everyone. And apparently the crew members kind of like, ooh, at the point where she like slams down and does the splits because everyone in their mindset is thinking, what about the baby? I didn't even think about it, and we should have said something <laughs> that Lucy's pregnant when she does the splits. I can't recall if we did say we, anything No, we, I don't think we, we did. did. Very well. I guess we didn't. Which, but the fact is that, yeah. like, apparently Lucy got so many comments afterwards, like, uh, from, like, fans or anyone. It's like, like, but what about the baby? And apparently she just kept on changing the answer for that because... Lucy like, has a steel uterus. A uterus of steel. That's, well, it's the same thing. It's not. It is not. How is it different? Please uh, explain to me. Because there's such... There's more drama in, a, uh, like, a, a uterus of steel. There's passion and there's emotion behind it. A steel uterus, you're not the doctor implanting it into Lucy, okay? <laughs> okay, fine. Fine. Um, again, a lot of great interviews. A lot, a lot of character interviews. I'm appreciating it, even if the grid is very confusing. <laughs> uh, I, If I had to pick a favorite, if you were to... Point a steel uterus at my head. <laughs> Never mind. If you were to <laughs> move on you? from that. Don Davis interview. Definitely my favorite, if I had to pick one. Uh, this is the interview for the actor who plays Major Garland Briggs, who uh, very, very sadly passed away, um, I don't know how many years later, but, but before the return for Twin Peaks. And uh, Don Davis, I haven't ever seen him in an interview before. It's the only interview I've seen him in. Just seems like, the funnest person to just talk to. Like, he just seems like a cool guy. I don't I don't know outside this interview. 
mm-hmm. but he, I really good, strong first impression. Mm-hmm. Um, and hearing his voice talking casually, it's not as like formal with the vocabulary like Major Briggs, but he's still got that deep register that's so powerful. Now, I will tell you right now, Cleal, uh, there are there's some additional content that I think you'll appreciate him even more. But that's going to come into the later third part Ooh. of this overall podcast. Yes, there's going to be three whole parts to this, but you'll have to stay tuned for whenever we get to the rest of those sweet, sweet special features, minus one of them. So, uh, no, it, it, it seems like there is a very comfortable candor from this man, not only from, like, the little register of his voice, but also the way that he's even just sort of, like, thinking back it's just a heavily comfortable atmosphere Mm -hmm. all throughout um even going into the evening audition and just like formally making sure to answer all the questions and just getting into like conversations about fishing yeah i love the fact that their conversation interview revolved around don davis growing up in the ozark mountains and then lynch asking about fishing talking about fishing for a while and then the only question that was left like hey can you cry on camera okay cool I, I really enjoy that's how it went. It's heavily wholesome. Very heavily wholesome. And the idea that fishing factored in, I think, is super interesting, considering that the character of Major Briggs yes. does fish. Yes. And uh, also, Lynch had asked if he's in the military, and Don Davis had said that, yes, he had served as a captain before. Mm-hmm. So, again, there's some overlap between the actor and character in this situation. Mm-hmm. Best part of it, though. I, I love all this candor. It's great. Best part of it, though, is what he recalls about the scene with Wyndham Earl. When he's struck with that dart, okay, that that scene with Wyndham Earl. And Don Davis recalls that he, prior to that scene, had been fed a Mexican lunch. And this Mexican lunch had included refried beans. He loved it. Really good, really good lunch. But, as you may have already expected kind of going into this conversation, when he fell over in that scene, quoting Don Davis here, an elephant wouldn't have broken wind any louder than I did. Thank God my poop don't stink or whatever. But there was a young girl working the PA, assisting the props master, and she was a few feet from me, and she'd be very friendly up to that point. From that point on, she hated me. She wouldn't smile at me. She'd probably turn and walk away anytime I came toward her. I've never forgotten that. It's like losing a nice relative, all because of a fart. This? It's such a powerful moment. All these interviews play out, like, they're interesting moments in the interviews, but most of them are like, oh, yeah, you know, I I wanted a job really bad for the script, and I auditioned, and it was really cool. David Lynch is so fun to work with, and, you know, we had a lot of improvisational on the set, and I think the legacy of Twin Peaks is that it was such a unique and visionary show. And then you have Don Davis in here letting it rip, and I got to appreciate it. I cannot add anything. To any of this? No, I don't. I, 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 I could try my best to dissect it. I could try my best to take pieces of this, and I could try to like mock certain things, such as like whether or not someone could like actually know what their farts smell like if they were an expert on that. Yeah. But I don't think that there's anything that would make anyone satisfied more than your intensity <laughs> into this man's farts. I and love the that. People, it's well, it's. I'm just trying to do a pale imitation of his intensity. No, it, it's fine. It's fine. He I, does such a great job delivering this. I I leave. I leave the floor to the both of you. Kudos. Okay. All right. All right. Well, thanks. Um, I'm just gonna move on then because I, I think it speaks for itself. 
we heard from Mary Jo Dashnell, who plays Eileen Hayward in the series. And we'll later hear in the, the director's side, her husband, Caleb Dashnell. Mm-hmm. But um, regarding Eileen Hayward, she would talk about situations where she'd be like in the wheelchair and people didn't know like she could actually walk. So she would start walking and people similar to the baby like, thing with like, Lucy like, would be very confused. Like stand up from the like wheelchair yep. or anything like that. And as far as why Eileen is in a wheelchair, she had been told from her memory that Eileen had been in a car accident. However, it wasn't really clear from any of the directors and writers that she spoke to, including it sounds like Frost and Lynch, it wasn't clear if the need for the wheelchair was physical or psychological. Mm -hmm. It's something I actually never thought about before this interview. Uh, Because Eileen is such a small-time character in a lot of the episodes who doesn't really start to show up as much until the end of season two. There's not much that really is covered with Eileen, so it's not something that I think is outright to be questioned. But I do Um, think it's a very interesting thought. It's an interesting thought. I suppose that it's still not one that I'm compelled to even ask just because, again, the lack of like time that we've been around her. But on the same token, is this something that if we explored, do I see someone like writing about in the lore of Twin Peaks? Yeah. But I also kind of just was cool with just, oh, this person's in a wheelchair. I didn't want to, like, question it. Like, I didn't feel like it needed to be explained. I, People yeah. can just be in wheelchairs. Yeah. That's a normal thing. Yeah. So, I don't know. I, I also don't think it needs a backstory either. I just thought it was an interesting thought if it was psychological. Because how many other characters in this story have psychological things going on with their characters and All are of them. hang-ups? And also, going back to that deleted scene where... Um, we got Dr. Jacoby speculating that Johnny's conditions are psychological and thus possibly malleable. There's good and bad. We talked about it at length then, so I won't drudge it up right now. There's good and bad to that sort of approach. I think there's something fine just about the idea that this woman's in a wheelchair. It doesn't matter why. That's not really that important. Mm-hmm. Just move on with the rest of her character. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was interesting mm-hmm. as a conversation topic. Yep. Um, Really excited that we heard from Lenny Von Dolan, the actor for Harold Smith, with white hair, which in the Twin Peaks universe is so ominous. (laughs) Seeing Harold with white hair was spooky. Lenny looks great. Oh, he looks great. Um, I'm also a big fan of just Harold in general and his performance. I've spoken before about, from what I read, that he really connected to the character, and I felt that in the interview. There's a certain, like, commitment to his character that even years later I still get that sense seeing him in an interview. I want to, that's one actor I'd be really interested in to experience more of his work. Cause I don't yes. know what else he's been in, but that'd be interesting to see more of him. I, I enjoy his like reminiscing on the I'll be here moment, which we've spoken about yes. before. Uh, just, I think it was a great ad lib. Yeah. It was a great ad lib. I, I believe so as well. Um, and the thing is that he knew that Harold would meet his demise. So as he puts it, he knew where the bookends were with the character. He created so the sphere of a character to dwell in while it was still there. Yes. Um, and when he saw the script saying that Harold would be found left hanging in a future episode, he, he called David Lynch and left this long rambling message on David Lynch's answer machine. And uh, it, uh, from the sounds of it, it was like in the middle of the sleepy times, like in which yeah. like, people are just like being asleep. That the, it, it reached him too late. It reached him too late. It was like, Lenny, never come up with a good idea a day before the shoot. Yeah, and it was this whole, he wanted to send off Harold in a more poetic, personal way than maybe how it actually happened. Mm-hmm. The sound, uh, a light sound going off inside the mm-hmm. background. Um, and I don't know what's better because I think the ideas that, he espoused in this, uh, at least what he remembers of this phone message 
it was more personal. It was more um, sentimental and intimate to the character. Yeah. But also there's something to be said that when we see Harold's death in the actual version of the show, the, the, the one that made it in, it's almost the opposite in the sense that you open up and everything's just all over the place. It's chaos. And just unceremonially, he's just hanging. It mm-hmm. almost feels like all of that personal tenderness of Harold's character has been ripped away very violently. Mm-hmm. And it's the contrast of these two ideas that I think is interesting. One would be a very like sincere send off to a loved character. And one is almost like painfully understated. Like it just kind of happened. And because the show doesn't linger on Harold, we don't get anything after Harold. We just see him hanging and I'm not sure he's ever brought up again. Mm-hmm. And the show doesn't look into him it doesn't bring him up. It's not till Fire Walk with me we see more of Harold. Yep. So the fact that his last sight we ever see of Harold is just his feet dangling without any sort of um, send off to the character. It's there's a coldness to that mm-hmm. that maybe is more chilling than warm. Whereas I think Van Dolan's idea would have been warmer. I don't know which is better. I think both are interesting. You know what I'm saying? I think that especially with the history of like Harold changes that we are aware of because mm-hmm. there have been multiple changes i'd be very intrigued on the overall mood that would be brought up with like the intimate herald Mm -hmm. send-off i'd love to see an outtake deleted scene version but at the same notion i feel that there is a suddenness and of what happens to herald Mm -hmm. and just seeing the situation that seems distinctly not herald that you can have speculation fly all over the place. You, like uh, my thing was yes. that I did not believe that it was done by Harold. This now, is something of an external. And if force. we go by the script, it just says he's found hanging. It doesn't say yes. why. Yes. Um. So I guess one question. I, I know we have a lot we want to still talk about here, but I am curious. Now that time has passed with Harold, and you kind of like thought about his character, and we've moved past season two, Firehawk of Me, The Secret Diary. You know, do you think Harold died because of spiritual forces, Wyndham Earl? Um, Leland, or do you think it was death by suicide? What do you think happened to Harold at the end in your interpretation? In my interpretation, in the area of Twin Peaks, I think that like a lot of spiritual and emotional items go very hand in hand. Mm-hmm. And I do think that the connection with Harold and these mystical forces of Twin Peaks, the fainting outside of the door, I do think that there is a, and being neighbors, to like the people of the red room. Right. I, I do heavily feel that this is just someone that has been ran through the red room or like elements of the red room, like a big old like pound of beef and being just strung along to the point that his demise, I feel is more an effect of the environment around him mm-hmm. more than himself whoever physically did the action matters less than what so even he if could even have even if Harold received. was the one to um arrange this event you would still look at the lodge spirits or environmental factors as manipulating him very much in the similar fashion that we would see from Laura Palmer or from yeah. Leland even I feel. even their deaths have a lot of spiritual connotations and i do think that it's very interesting to even explore his aspect because we have Laura Palmer, as well as Leland, affected by the Red Room, but still being close with familial entities. And Harold, who just is shut away, mm-hmm. but also reaching out over whatever small bits he can. And specifically, Laura Palmer come, comes across him one way or another. Yeah. Th- there's a lot of 
let's call it notepad room mm-hmm. for just fun speculation or deep dive material sure. to go in with that alone, uh, especially on just individual character analysis. Do you do you like Harold a lot? I, I know. I remember when we went over season two stuff. I remember liking Harold more than you did. Okay, like he's higher on my theoretical list of characters than I think he would have emplaced. But I'm just curious, like, you know, how much do you like Harold? I enjoy Harold in a very specific way. It's one of those situations where you don't know, like, on, like, go into the character and just, like, whether or not it's going to be excitement. But there's a specific tone that happens whenever I think of Harold. Everything, every time I think of, like, Harold, you know that eerie song that kind of, like, plays in the background? Like, dun, dun. Like, like it feels like wind chimes. Are Harold's like theme vibrating. is really good. It's it, one of my favorite tracks from the soundtrack. It I is, think it's underrated a little bit. But. It's something that is very fitting and uh-huh. very haunting that yeah. Harold sticks with you. Yeah, I love Harold's theme. It's really good. So, and the fact that, like, Lenny was able to capture a lot of that, it, it, it was, it, it's great that mm-hmm. He was able to do so much. I think another thing about the actor that I found um, very appealing was his take on the series legacy where he, he feels that David Lynch and Twin Peaks in general were, as he put it, playing the record at a different speed mm-hmm. from other people. And in a lot of cases that evoke strong responses. Yes. And, and he feels he, that go on. He feels that great art evokes strong responses. Yeah. Use the word visceral visceral. Uh, I, I really, I really, um, resonate with his ideas uh, it's not always the case i don't i don't want to get wrapped up that it always has to cause strong responses but generally if i'm like debating on seeing a movie and i find out people either love it or hate it i'm more interested than i am a movie that's getting consistent six out of tens i think that's whenever <laughs> something tries to push things in a stronger end that's where it's just going to stick with you and which i think is like something that great art really does mm-hmm. it's something that will probably inspire other things just because of how passionately you went in one direction, whether or not that art you make is going to oppose or coincide with that same direction. Yes. Yes. Uh, only two more actors left. Both are a bit smaller time. I would say within the scope of twin peaks. First up, we have Charlotte Stewart. That is the actor for Betty Briggs. Also the one who had played the girlfriend slash wife in Eraserhead all those years ago. Yes. Suitcase. I thought it was really interesting that she brought up that toward the end of season two, they were not receiving full scripts anymore, such that the actors who wanted to know what's going on, they would get together like for dinner at each other's houses. They would like rotate whose house it is yep, and they would share what their script had so they can put the show together because it <laughs> wouldn't be on the air right away. So they wanted to know what's going to happen. So when they figure out that Cooper got shot, this is like, Oh, Oh no, I guess we're out of a job anymore. Oh, no. So I, I just thought that was really cute. Uh, that they I, all go to each other's houses for dinner. I thought there was a lot of cute things that went along with uh, Charlotte, especially with like the idea of like bringing along an enormous cactus plant, because that's something that, would just be cool with Dave mm-hmm. Lynch and like, um, I think that um, the fact that it's similar to Audrey with the like, hey, here's the character Audrey and here's the character Betty Briggs with the similar response of like, who? And and I and I think that Charlotte Stewart brings a lot to a very small role. I think that there's a sort of presence to the character that wouldn't be there if it wasn't for what she brings to the table because the actual writing is pretty small. Although, when we ever get to the international pilot and you see the first episode, the pilot again, because it's mostly the same until the end, it's very funny to me that Charlotte Stewart, Betty Briggs, when they're having the phone call with, like, where's Laura? Sarah Palmer's, like, calling everyone. Yes. Um, 
Charlotte Stewart is holding like a knife. So it makes Betty Briggs seem like secretly terrifying because she's on the phone talking and she's got like this blade in her hand. She calmly knits while like working through revelations with her husband. Yeah. She has knives in her hands. Like I see no issues. I just find it funny because Betty Briggs is one of the most like unequivocally peaceful people according to seasons one and two. We have reason to believe they're the only faithful couple to exist in Twin Peaks. And speaking of faithful couples, we also have uh, one of the most faithful couples, uh, or at least half of them, inside <laughs> one of these interviews. And that would be uh, Robin Lively, who did uh, play the role of... You going to say it? I'm trying to read oh, okay, it from your it. eyeballs. I'll tell you with my eyeballs. Okay, I did it. Dan Ashbrook. Do you want to jump in? I got this. I got this. Dwayne and Dougie and Lana, Lana. Lana Budding Lana. Milford. I got it. You didn't do Budding, though. Anyway, Lana so Milford. She, uh, she revealed that it was her idea as an actor to treat the role with the Southern accent. That that was kind of her personal touch. And when she went yep, to the interview, she, went, she wasn't sure if she was going to get the role, but she wanted to leave an impression. Oh, yeah. Uh, as she described it, she was going for like a dingbat Southern no, no, sort no, of feel. No, 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 no. Dingbat ha-ha. Dingbat haha. That's how she explained her act, <laughs> which I thought that was cool to know. I, I think it's cool to know as well. It seems that overall she had a lot of fun sort of like bringing that special style to it that I don't think that anyone that would have been more subtle would yeah. have been Because it's not a subtle character. It's not. I, I think like adding that, uh, even just like that little small choice and just like playing along mm -hmm. with even just like the sound and candor of her voice while she's lulling people in, um, it makes some heavily like memorable performances, especially when they decide, you know, we should put her in with the guy with the gun. You know, if they would have been able to exhort, extort, I keep saying exhort, extort another season after season two right away, if they would have had a season three like a few months later or a year, year later or whatever, I would have wanted Lana's character to do some things. Like I would have wanted Lana to be a character to be explored more because I feel like we only ever got like a little teaser of what Lana, did I say Laura? No, you said Lana. Okay, I was worried I said Laura. We only ever got like a teaser of what Lana's character can be like. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like we don't really know Lana Milford. Is that fair to say? It's, it's, we know a character of her, but I don't think we know her. We know her as much, uh, if not a little bit more, uh, than we know Lil Nicky. Uh, it was I don't know if there's much to know about Lil Nicky. There, there's enough to know to like question He's Lil the Nikki. devil. We already know this. <laughs> What more do you need? There's a whole bunch of stories about the devil, okay? You don't uh -huh. need to expand upon that. Lana Milford, though, is new mythology. I'm just saying that we could have a second sort of like Paradise Lost situation, you know? Speaking of books. Yeah, books. On Disc 7, there's a crew interview section that opens up with Jennifer Lynch, the author of the book, not Paradise Lost, although it's often compared to it. The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer. I've never felt a harder right turn that was like so <laughs> casually put through. I feel like my life, veered off the road. No, my life was put in danger at this point in the podcast. And I don't feel safe anymore podcasting. But <laughs> I never um, did. I, I thought this was really cool to see uh, an interview with Jennifer Lynch preserved yeah. here. I, I think that it's like one of those perspectives that you want to actively know, but you don't really expect to like pop up in these. Right, because I wouldn't consider her crew for Twin Peaks. Yeah, no, especially on disc seven. Disc 7. Yeah, because Disc 7 is still within the second season of yeah. the series. Uh, if we were to go into something like... I, I would even, like, imagine seeing this pop up for, like, maybe, maybe Firewalk With Me. So, yeah, we, we get more of a sense of how this came to be. She said that she was given a list of characters that she had to include in some way, 
just mm-hmm. to make the story make sense, and a semblance of ideas of where the show is going to go. Now, mind you, like beforehand, like this, it, right. it's a horrifying situation to be put into these prompts firsthand because she was told, uh, like she was given a call, is like, hey, this is David Lynch. Not in David Lynch's voice. Come over to Mark Frost's house with myself and Mark Frost, and we'll have a conversation. And she was one of the very few people, one of three people, which likely was David Lynch and Mark Frost, because I don't think they kept each other in the dark about this, <laughs> that knew Laura Palmer's killer. So to have this, and then those sort of prerequisites of like, okay, here you go. Here's the secret. Here is a few characters that you've got to keep in. Other than that, go wild. And she reports having a lot of creative freedom that, and I think would be kind of hypocritical if David Lynch and Mark Frost didn't give her creative freedom considering they themselves need that (laughs) as creators themselves. But she said that of the diary, you know, people ask her, are there things in there that are based on her own life? And she said there were two things. And only one thing that she's willing to tell. And the one is that there is a dream in the diary of Laura sitting in a corner of a room and there is a rat that she knows is going to come and bite her foot off. So Laura instead bites her own foot off first. That is a dream that Laura has in the book that Jennifer Lynch had had in real life. Yay. The other thing that has in common is a mystery. I like that strategy, by the way, of like revealing one, but not the other. <laughs> it's it's very um, alluring as a concept because it doesn't really give you the full story. It yeah. lets you linger and wonder. <laughs> it could be something completely normal. Maybe she had a dream once about an old lady at a gas station. She- so just like the log lady, but yep. that's it. That's the only similarity. And it's not even like dreams that are covered. It's just like two things that happen in the book, which is that vague language that even like yeah. pushes you further. But the book is so raw and personal that I, I get why she's asked that by people because it really feels lived in. Um, yeah. And also that our insight was curious about Mrs. Tremond. She said that she saw Mrs. Tremond as someone who might be forgiving of Laura Palmer. Mm-hmm. And that the Meals on Wheels was kind of a manifestation of Laura trying to find that redemption. Mm-hmm. Um, that was interesting, I thought. And then similar to Mark Frost, she comments on Twin Peaks as being connected to sort of time. She said, it's got today, it's got yesterday, and it is the embodiment of what we remember of our day of our youth and what we anticipate about growing old. Mm-hmm. So there's that contradiction element of it is the youth, but it's also growing old. Mm-hmm. It is the past. It is the future. It is timeless, can't stuck have, in time. You can't have a quarter with both sides. We then move on to a series of director interviews. And again, it doesn't always say if they did like a season one. So I, I think I got all of them caught up here. So first one is Todd Holland who is the director of episodes 11 and 20. I know these are just numbers to you, Professor, yeah, but he, 11 and 20. Yep. And um, Todd said that he had been a huge fan of season one. Big fan, copious amounts of notes, which again- Unabomber impressive. levels, he said. Yeah, which is impressive, again, for a TV show yeah. that you cannot like actively do anything unless you're recording tapes and then- you're right. Like rewatching it that way. So the fact that like we're going through crazy things and just pausing it back and forth, just imagine the extra amount of hurdles one has to make to be at like Holland levels of like yes. intricate. And, and when he finally got brought into the show, he was very quick to ask a lot of questions to Mark Frost. Yeah. To the extent that crew members would tell him later that Mark Frost told him things that he didn't tell anyone else. Yeah. That he became kind of privy to certain ideas. And Holland was the one who had come up with the opening to episode 11, which is the one where it zooms out from that um, that tile hole yep, going to Leland. Yep, apparently, like, there was just a simple sort of thing in which, like, it, it was just, like, Sheriff Truman telling Leland, 
nope, here are your rights and so on. Well, Leland is looking absently. So he goes into that and sort of positions like, oh, how's this even You can imagine that looking so boring as like an episode opening. It could be the most like neutral, stale opening ever. And don't get me wrong, like not every opening in Twin Peaks is that amazing. I love the show, Mm -hmm. but if they would have opened with just like, a fade out from black. Leland's at a, at a desk. There's the moody Twin Peak music and Sheriff walks in. It would have felt like a normal opening. It I wouldn't have questioned it. But the thing is that he takes it to like a level egg. Like, okay, what am I going to do with it? He sits down, gets into the headspace, mm-hmm. and actually like focuses on he one thing. He sits in the chair that Leland's going to be in. Yes, and he just looks into the tile. And that's when like inspiration strikes. He, he looks at the same thing Leland will be looking at and goes from that. And apparently in the original writing of it, he got too close to the truth. Because this is before the killer had been revealed. <laughs> so that was in there too that he accidentally was bumbling up to the truth and had to take out some words in the opening because according to Todd Holland, he had got too close, which again, I think is very, very interesting at that moment. I know again that for you, as you watch the episodes got better and better and better, but that episode 11 opening is so special. It is. It genuinely is for all sorts of reasons. He also made a comment that Twin Peaks is a very inexpensive show to make, which I didn't know. Mm -hmm. That's cool to know. Yeah, no. I never would have known budget-wise where Twin Peaks fell. Yeah, no, I, from what I've been hearing as far as like when they're trying to even save a little bit on the budget, I'm just kind of curious on what where did budget go. I, I just have a morbid curiosity, not to say donuts. like I'm accusing. I'm like pretty saying, sure it was in donuts. It's all donuts. Like specifically donuts, it, it ran on donuts. It didn't ne- run on Dunkin', <laughs> but on donuts. Next we have Caleb Deschanel, director of episodes 6, 15, and 19. Okay. He says that he had known David Lynch since the Eraserhead days. They had been in friendly terms uh, around the time that Lynch had asked him to direct a couple episodes, and he agreed. And he was, as far as Hitch contributions, was the one who came up with the idea to show Ben and Jerry with their flashback of The Dancing Girl. Yes. This was, again, a result of David Lynch encouraging the directors to bring in their own ideas. Mm-hmm. Curious enough, little anecdote, The Dancing Girl was Emily Fincher, who played that role, and that was David Fincher's sister which if you don't know, David Fincher is another famous director. Um, notable works in the 90s would include the movie Seven. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think it's very interesting that, you know, David Fincher's sister was the one who was dancing on the set. I don't know why, but okay, I can believe you. Well, a famous director's relative was on there. I well, I'm sure cool. that there's all sorts of people that have famous connections throughout, uh, like LA. Why specifically this person? Is Any this specific. Connection? I think it's also interesting that the other director we're going to talk about here, Stephen Gyllenhaal, is the father of Jake Gyllenhaal. I just and think a, things are interesting. And eventually we'll reach Kevin Bacon. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> so other, otherwise, <laughs> he kind of came in with this take that Twin Peaks isn't as weird as people say it is. Um, Dashnell said that you just kind of have to accept that these types of characters exist in real life and humanity. They are out there. And the more somebody, I think he's indicating the writers and directors. Yes. The more a writer and director tries to treat it like it's fantastical, like it's super weird, it's going away from the truth about the show. And it's making things more one-dimensional and... Basically, that's the opposite direction of where he thinks the show should go. Okay. Which is something that we heard echoed in a few of the interviews. I think um, going back to Sherilyn Fenn, the Audrey actor, I made a similar comment that some writers and directors, not saying names, were not getting the idea of the dark inner worlds of the characters, but were instead embellishing the weird for the sake of weird. Mm. There was that feeling, I think, among some of the cast and crew. Mm. And as far as directors who felt that they knew the world of Twin Peaks really well, 
Mm. Um, Dwayne Dunham's not very shy in saying that in his interview. Oh. Uh, he talks about how he had been involved with the pilot. Okay. And as a result of helping edit the pilot, he was able to kind of carry the torch when David Lynch was off working on Wild at Heart during the shooting of episode one. And so Dwayne Dunham was the director of episodes one and then later on 18 and 25. Mm-hmm. Quite a bit of a break there. Mm-hmm. And he kind of talked about how he felt like he understood the characters probably the best after David Lynch and Mark Frost in those early days, just from having been around that a lot. He refers to his memory of when he had been directing the part, I think it's in episode 18, where Ben is watching the old footage of himself, mm-hmm. where it's young Ben, young Jerry, and the the father. Mm-hmm. And that sort of groundbreaking video. And adding that a lot of the stuff that Richard Bamer was doing with Ben that he just kind of let him go wild on it. That that was mostly Bamer's ideas. <laughs> yes, and I do find it very great that we do have the moment and scene, which apparently was all the actor, in which like he kind of like went to town with like looking at the overall footage and mm-hmm. just like he wouldn't just cry on the set for it. Yes, um, like th- apparently that was just like the icing on the cake, especially for when it came to Dwayne. Um, I will say that. Uh, it's funny to kind of like consider someone who does say, for example, say that he is very connected towards these characters yep. alongside with those other directors, which seems like something very bold to say. While on the other hand, he's also uh, very humbled by someone like David Lynch, in which he says that he owes his career yes. to David. So. Yeah, he basically viewed himself as like the best pick to direct episode one after the pilot when Mark Frost and David Lynch weren't as around, hmm. which... I don't know. Interesting. I don't know if it's true or not. I mean, I don't know. it wasn't around, but uh, I think that's the thing. Uh, speaking of interesting, I think that there is one person that you would really want to. Yeah, like, I mentioned off pod Stephen Gyllenhaal. So Stephen uh-huh. Gyllenhaal, since we of course were interested in interesting things, uh, like I said before, father of Jake Gyllenhaal and Maggie Gyllenhaal, mm-hmm. of course, uh, director of episode twenty-seven. He had one episode. His interview is among the the stranger of all these ones. Now, why would that be, Khalil? So. He opens up by saying that the show is against Western civilization. Notice how no one else has said that. It's a very bold claim. It is. He very says bold. that the show is almost pagan. Yes. Now, what, what what do you think that means, Khalil? I think what he means this is a, this is my guess at his words is that he views the show as kind of calling to a mysticism. Okay. That is not as binary black and white as most Western civilization facets of Christianity. Um, You can maybe argue capitalism in some ways. I think there's this vague notion that maybe he's drawing on that the mysticism of the woods, the native American spirituality, the red room ideas, the dweller in the threshold, that those ideas exist more in a pagan belief system than a like Abrahamic religion. Okay. That's my guess. That's it's you- an incredibly vague statement. <laughs> and he doesn't really elaborate it's a that statement. much. An incredibly vague statement. What do you think? Do you agree? I, Is it pagan? It was something that I had a harder grasp on because I'm less than familiar with like pagan beliefs and I mean they, that's the thing is pagan beliefs. Pagan just basically means heathen. It I, could be any non-Christian religion. As far as again, I, I don't know much about paganism. I well, don't I, know about like in that realm. So I feel that I didn't have much to yeah. sort of think and consider and say by outside no, my field. By no means am I an expert. I I am not pagan, nor is anyone super close to me pagan. Um, I knew some pagans in high school. But I, I, at the end of the day, it's any sort of um, tribal religion, uh, 
indigenous religion of various cultures around the world, but even extends its branch over to things like Norsk belief or Greek or Roman belief. Um, pagan is literally anything that is not Judeo-Christian or if you want to extend that is not part of the major faiths of like Buddhism or Hinduism. Okay. A lot of times it's nature related. A lot of times it's involving multiple gods, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not one thing. Like paganism okay. is not one thing. It's no more than saying like Native American is pretending it's one culture when in fact it was many nations. Mm-hmm. I would link it that way. Mm-hmm. Many different beliefs under one. So when he says it's it's pagan, I'm just like, okay, man, like, sure. I don't, I don't fully vibe with that, but that's interesting to say. Okay. And also he said that his biggest feeling when he directed episode 27 is that he just wanted to hang out with all the actors. Which, as like a fan of Twin Peaks, I don't blame you. I'd talk about Mexican food with Don Davis any day of the week. But it's a very funny takeaway compared to like what everyone else said. It, it, it seems like there was like almost like a dramatic sort of like take, almost like buddies in college that he sort of like gets a feel out. Even when he describes, he says, there's one back actor that was vain and weird, could not get along with. He's not going to name names. But they were good in their role because the role required that out of them. Yes. I mean, like, that narrows it down, though. It's got to be male, and it's got to be a character who's vain. Yep. I'm, like, looking at, like, is it Ben Horn? Is it... Sure, this is episode Truman. 27, so it's going to be later in there. And what if it's the old man? What if it's the mayor? <laughs> like, it could be anyone it who's is a male Nikki. who's vain. It could Little be Nikki. Dick Tremaine. I mean, that's the image of vanity, I would say, is Dick <laughs> Tremaine. Oh, I miss Dick Tremaine. Now that I brought him up, I feel sad that we don't have him right now. We don't have him right now in front of us. Well, the I, character, not I, the actor. There has to be, like, Nothing wrong with the actor, but I want the character here. <laughs> this has got to be something in which I've got to, like, arrange for you personally. Like, just one random day, you're going to get a package. It's going to be human-sized. And when you open it up... <laughs> human-sized! <laughs> you can open it up, and it's like a cardboard cutout of, like, uh, Dick Tremaine. I realized it sounded like I put Dick Tremaine inside of a box. It sounded like you definitely did. <laughs> but no, I just made a box out of Dick Tremaine. Yeah. Uh... Going back to um, Jill and all here, he said that bubbling underneath Twin Peaks is something like David Lynch's mind and that some of the actors could go really deep into that and pull from that, like probably Kyle MacLachlan, right? Others were lost the whole time. He also does not say which ones. (laughs) And I just thought his interview was super different from anyone else. Strange commentary happening mm-hmm. on there and his energy levels were just so different from everyone else too yes because like the guy right after him was tim hunter yep. and he just seemed like so like i don't know like kind of just mellow compared to the guy who just came before him he just kind of like i wouldn't say sleepy but he was kind of like it's kind of chill about the whole thing very cold, whereas jill and hall was like really into it someone hit the brakes yeah uh, it was just very funny there. uh tim hunter's the director of episodes 4 16 and 28 he had known David Lynch since the AFI, American Film Institute. Uh, also, he just randomly said that he felt episode four, which he directed, quote, there was a feeling that it was one of the better earlier episodes. Citation needed. I don't know who said that. He just vaguely mentioned that, yeah, people just agree. My episode was really good. So, uh... Boomst. <laughs> I'm not saying what? it's bad, but, like, who said that? What was this episode? like? Uh, episode four? Yes. I just pulled up the uh, description on Wikipedia here. I didn't go with the Twin Peaks wiki because it didn't pop up on Google first. And just making sure it is confirmed this is the same guy and his name is in the credit because, you know, pilot yes. episode This one. is not Judas Booth. We're good. It is Tim Hunter. Uh-huh. Um, this is the one where Sarah Palmer was drawing Killer Frank 
with Andy, or Andy was drawing him, I should say. Mm -hmm. This was the one where Cooper interviews Jacoby, and there was the whole weird, I think this was the one with the, the golf ball situation with Jacoby. Yeah. There was also more stuff with Benjamin Horn and Catherine at that motel. Parole hearings for Hank were mentioned. Not Hank yet, but parole hearings. And then they also visit the veterinary clinic. That's where the llama happens. Okay, never mind. I agree. It is one of the best episodes. It had the, the llama take. It seems like the majority of this episode seems to be at the same calm demeanor that this man also is in. Like, it's a good episode. It's I just think episode. it's funny it when he said there's a general feeling that uh, it was one of the better early ones. And I'm like, who says that? I mean, season one in general, everyone loves season one. You do. You did. You just did. I woke well, as the llama. If you would have specified, it, there was a general feeling that it was one of the better episodes that had a llama in it. I'd be <laughs> like, 100%. So, okay, Khalil, list top 10 episodes of Twin Peaks with a llama in it. <laughs> Number one, episode four. <laughs> End of list. Easy peasy. <laughs> also, he made a weird mentioning of the success of Twin Peaks was partly owed to how it could put its finger on your soul, which I just thought was a funny way of wording things. Yeah. Not wrong. I don't think he's wrong. Uh, it's just funny. Yeah. Then the uh, last feature the that we can cover right without spoilers here. is Disc 9 Archival Interviews. And this was for Fire Walk With Me. So they're very short interviews. and the way So they're, short. It's like, again, like going through all these other yeah. interviews firsthand, everything is just like, almost like Whiplash. You can cover all the interviews in about, I think it's like five minutes. I'm pretty and, sure and like you can minutes. tell from how long we talked about it. Like the first interview with like David Lynch and the cast was like a, like a 30 minute thing. Wasn't it? 40, 40, 40 or 50 minutes. So it was quite a long thing. These ones are super, super short and they're like edited they're... really interesting because they're just like cut to black recut. Yeah. It looks they're like... not edited. They're just kind of footage. Yeah. They're just quick footage. You think that there may have been more interview there or like, they're just quickly saying something like, Hey, quick impressions on like, and it's, it's definitely promotional. Like they're trying to get you to see the movie. Like they, they feel like as far as it goes, it seems that they're passionate about it. So I don't know. I'd be curious who this was made for. Maybe because it's like, not fully edited, but it's definitely meant to be seen by people to get them to see the movie. Like maybe like it was like the way it was shot and quickly edited. Maybe they were thinking like maybe we'll do an advertisement with this. Like, I don't know. Maybe it's, I, I, that that's a good thought. Maybe it just didn't get used for something and it got rediscovered later. Mm -hmm. It's like raw footage. Um. So the first one is Ray Wise. Cool to see him. He compares the Firewalk of movie to a rebirth which is certainly a description that could be used. Twin Peaks was like a shooting star that exploded. And now it's being reborn. Yep. He also says at the end, more happens in those seven days than happened in the whole series on television. Do you believe that, that much? Minutes? I can promise. He promises this. Does it deliver? No, that is a bold faced lie. <laughs> I really enjoy Firewalk with me. It's at least a nine out of 10, even on a bad day. It's a nine out of 10, mm -hmm. but it is not more than what happens in the entire series of like 29 episodes. No, it is absolutely not. It is, it is definitely more than what happens in two episodes. I can say I, that. I would say that like the, even like maybe more episodes. I would say it's that, definitely not the, more than season one. The hardest part about this is that it only like does as much as close to that promise if people have actively watched the series itself and saw all the series, like at that point, yeah. I can see where like someone might have some arguing, arguing room in which like, Oh, well it explores so much of Laura Palmer inside of like these different scenarios, these different places and these sorts of characters. Sure. But that's only with the context of the series prior mm -hmm. though. Allow me to argue how much these actors even knew what was going to go into the film 
and what wasn't. Let's say if we like had had they seen the screening, like it, it, it's wondering if like maybe this was shot before the screening. So imagine the all the missing pieces. pieces. Yeah, if we put the missing pieces together, still the not movie, the whole series. Still not. The, you still think, do not feel like no. That's I up. don't think that with the missing pieces, it suddenly has more events than the whole than twenty nine episodes worth of content. Twenty nine episodes worth of content where some things are revisited. It's also the vague statement of more things happen. What does that mean? If you just mean like events, it would be more work to summarize all of Twin Peaks with every detail than it would be to summarize Fire Walk with me and Missing Pieces. Now we're seeing this ret- like in the future. And if there was a point in which- The future like, of distant past, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera, yes. et cetera. If someone like saw this missing footage and just like got that impression and went to see the film itself, I'm kind of curious on whether or not it would have like, you know, like that little soft pull, like- um, yeah psychological effect. It disappoints you almost because it wasn't I, as much. I, I would argue that maybe it might not disappoint, but or you're it, actively looking for yeah. that and then you become more like, maybe. convinced. Maybe. Go either way. Mm. Either way, um, I don't think he, uh, I don't think his <laughs> promise works for me. We want a refund back. Yes, yes. Um, next up is Cheryl Lee. I don't want my refund back from this interview. Is good. And <laughs> I really enjoy that first off, she is inter- being interviewed in front of a fireplace and also above the fireplace is a picture of herself with the Laura, you know, Laura Palmer's actors and then Leland and Sarah's actors too. The happy family right yeah. above the fireplace. Yep. Yeah. yeah. It's great background. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, I get the sense out of Cheryl Lee that sort of like with the Harold situation, really connecting to her character. And I don't know. I mean, same as Jennifer Lynch connected to Laura, I think too, right in the diary, Cheryl Lee said that when she shot, the film Fire Walk With Me, it was living a lifetime in two short months. She describes that as one of the most amazing experiences she's ever had. And like to have like these very like heavy reactions to it is pretty cool, I got to say. Uh, despite the fact that how lonely Laura was was also a bit of emphasis. And she, that. yeah, I'll, I'll read the quote here where she emphasized it because it, it, she says it like repeatedly in this one quote. Quote, thank God for David because he's so brilliant that he gets you through and he helps you find it. I, it was an incredibly lonely role. One of Laura's big things is her loneliness. And that is what I will always remember about her the most. And that's the emotion I felt the most while playing the role. I don't think a day went by that I didn't feel an incredible loneliness. And that was at times very hard to deal with. There's also going into the further David Lynch aspect of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, she also mentions that it's um, in order to work with them, you kind of have to be living in that moment and willing to go wherever he takes you. And the fact that we're going into these sort of darker places and that Lynch, that, that actors are consistently comfortable enough with Lynch to go into those places. Yes. It's a lot to ask of an actor to enter the place of mind that someone like Cheryl Lee would have had to enter for Laura Palmer. Mm-hmm. That is a very harrowing role. Yes. And to be in that role and that mindset for two months, you have to really trust that the director and writer you're working with, who's on set with you, David Lynch, you have to trust him. If the um, accounts are correct and this person is noted as humble and kind, comes from a very good place, and we're still going into these dark places along with Mm -hmm. him, uh, it's much more of a different reaction, say, for example, other horrifying places with other directors, say, for example, Stanley Kubrick, notably for The Shining. Stanley Kubrick will... If accounts are to be believed, which there are a lot of accounts of this, uh, he is more likely to put you through more hell. Yep. He is more likely to make you less comfortable and treat you kind of as a prop. Like, I love I love Kubrick's films. Big fan of The Shining, 2001 A Space Odyssey. 
at the same time, I mean, that reminds me of this video I ended up seeing a, a long time ago um, from the YouTuber Maggie Mayfish. Um, I don't watch a lot of her content usually. It's just a different style than what I'm into. But I do want to mention she did a video on Stanley Kubrick versus David Lynch. It has spoilers for Lost Highway if you're worried about spoilers. But that one contrasted how they both worked with actors so differently. Yeah. And how both had very dark themes in their movies, but one of them would help you through it and one of you would make it worse. So this is not an original thought that we have. Other people have said this too. Um, There's something to that. Uh, Also going back to David Lynch, Moira Kelly, the actor who ends up playing Donna in Fire Walk with me, compares him to a crazy uncle, (laughs) which I think is a good thing in this case. Yeah, apparently, like, um, he's a very supportive director. The whole entire production of itself was bizarre and fun working throughout it. She also Um, promises if you like the series, you'll love the movie, which is not historically correct. That is... There are many people who did not love the movie who loved the series. Honestly, like, I'm still kind of blown away by that, but that's just my sort of, like, thing. I, I would be, like... Probably in the surprise booth along with maybe I, I think that even, you know, even though you feel that way, you still got to agree they're very different. They are very different. And anytime you have a huge difference between one installment of a series and another one, there's always going to be that member, that group of the fan base that doesn't like the change. Mm-hmm. And I'm not even saying they're wrong. Like, you might legitimately think Fire Walk With Me is a bad movie for good reasons. Yes. Um, I, You know, there's a lot of bands that I'll listen to and they'll create a new album and I'll hate their new album. It's not because, like, I'm a fake fan. It's because I just don't like what they're doing. It's quite possible to like the humor of Twin Peaks and then go into Fire Walk with me and feel like it's too miserable. Mm -hmm. Like, it's no longer entertainment. It's just misery and not find value in that. Mm -hmm. That's a valid takeaway. But for a lot of Twin Peaks fans over time, more and more people have come around to to love Fire Walk with me over time. Mm Mm-hmm. And one thing that I do adore as far as, like, looking more into Moira Kelly is that uh, apparently from her account, she says the crew and cast were very nice. That's one thing that she was very nervous on was that she's hopping into a role that, hey, there's all sorts of people that have recognized who Donna was. And to have her jump into the Donna role, obviously that that's something to be nervous about. Twin Peaks was, like, very sizable, especially for, like, things like European audiences over time. So to have that little bit of comfort, like, I, I think that's I think that's amazing. I just kind of realized something as you were talking. So I knew that Moira Kelly, I knew her from one other role. I don't know if I ever mentioned it on the pod. There's only one thing else that I'm aware of Moira Kelly being in. You know what it is? I'm afraid. It's The Lion King. And really? I was looking up, I was like, how, wait, 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 wait. How far apart were these movies? So she was Donna in 1992, and she was Nala in 1994. Yes. So... You know, obviously production isn't the same as release date, but it's about two years separation between being in Fire Walk With Me and Disney's The Lion King. And I just think those are almost the exact opposites of movies in terms of their <laughs> feeling and aesthetic and audience and everything. So what but it's very mean? funny. Like one is about uh, means of death and destruction that ends up sort of like crumbling a uh, world around them. And the other one is Fire Walk With Me. Um, the last actor of all these interviews is Machen Amik. Uh, again, returning to us for, is this our third interview with, with this collection yeah, we looked at? I was actually surprised that we got Machen this time because... She, she's like the next person who gets interviewed, I guess, for uh, for Fire Walk With Me stuff, which is interesting. Yeah, because uh, I would say she still like has like more presence in the roles inside I, of it. I, I was actors, surprised they didn't have Sarah Palmer's actor for Grace Zabriskie. I mean, Sarah Palmer, she was in the movie less. Um, than, than Shelley? Yeah. 
Oh, wow. Because, I, like, mm. we took some time with, like, uh, Shelly Johnson inside the double R. Mm. Uh, we also uh, had, like, a little bit of time with Leo's, uh, if we count, like... Um, if you count the deleted scenes, deleted especially, scenes. the uh, missing pieces. Meanwhile, I feel like we're just quickly, like... I think that you can have, like, all of... Sarah Palmer's lines on a sticky note. Okay, okay, fine. So uh, Lines well, are not I, I, everything I, for a performance. It's not, it's not. They also, like, deleted scenes her in her physical performances, were, which were amazing. Yeah. Again, there's no doubt against the actor. I think the more surprising person that was left out would have probably been uh, the actor for Teresa Banks. Oh, wow, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. I said that in a very Midwestern. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. North Dakota. <laughs> um, I'll, also, I would I'd go on a limb and say that potentially having the interview for any of, like, the agent characters would have been notable. I mean, I mean, the obvious one would be Desmond, mm-hmm. you know, having Chris Isaac, you mm-hmm. know, be doing an interview. Now, that's where, again, I feel that this may have been, like, a potential trailer or advertisement because Shelley's character is someone who is facially more recognizable mm-hmm. for Twin, Twin Peaks. fans. Good, good point. So uh, that's where I kind of lean into that instead of, like, again, actors more prominent throughout the movie. Sure. So first off, with, with Mage and Mick, okay, I just want to very quickly say I really like the outfit she's wearing in this interview. She's got this great, like, reddish pinkish turtleneck sweater that goes with this red hat and I don't I couldn't tell what the earrings were but it was like this great color combination of like pink and red very very good outfit choice clearly no one else had a good impression with their clothes I already talked about the fireplace for uh people don't wear fireplaces Khalil (laughs) I mean arguably Anakin Skywalker <laughs> kind of wore a fireplace a couple times. Anyway, um, I don't know. I just, no one had a striking of an outfit. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, uh, Machen Amick uh, was talking about David Lynch again. Uh, she says that he creates the way you talk and the way you walk. And it's really fun to work with someone like that. She also remembers this one time where David Lynch kept telling her to like lean her head up to look at the ceiling and she just kept being told like more, like lean your head more, Le- keep leaning it back all the way back. And she turns to David Lynch and she's like, would anyone really do this? Like, what, does, like, this, what does this even mean? Nobody would do this. This, this is the movies. Which I, I think that that answer is very revealing for what Lynch is doing versus a lot of directors contemporarily is that Lynch does not view film as reality. And that's important because a lot of people treat movies like they need to be grounded in our reality. Mm -hmm. There is a reality to the stories, Mm -hmm. but the reality of Fire Walk With Me, Twin Peaks, Eraserhead is not necessarily our reality. Now, mind you, it's not to say that, like, these are two different, like, schools of thought that I think are important. It's not to say one is more right than the other, but Twin Peaks most certainly fits best in recognizing what it is. Yeah. So not trying to like do things just because they're normal, but looking at the idea of what would a character in this world do and mm-hmm. being willing to like over-dramatize for certain, certain effects. Mm-hmm. I think if Lynch pared down to reality more, I think Twin Peaks would have a much less interesting tone. Much less interesting tone. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, that, uh, that, that concludes all of the, the interviews. Man, if only we could end all our podcasts when it's like, we're done here. Good night, uh, everybody. There, we'll leave the microphones on for you in case you need them. But elsewise, I'm going to bed. There was uh, a lot of really good content here. Again, imploring you that if you 
have the ability to see these interviews yourself to check them out if any of these sounded interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, the grid. Look at the grid. Look at the grid. Admire the grid. Don't admire it. Lick just, the screen. Just, le- just like sit there and just like similar to Leland Palmer looking at like the little <laughs> hole in the wall. Just like take it all in Watch and have me. it take you in. Watch me. Watch me. That's what it'll say to you. Mm. I have two wonderful and strange questions of the week. Okay. The you look like like an eye roll at me. What was that? It wasn't an eye roll. What was that? It was an eye point. I am pointing Excuse my me, eyes what? at you. Okay. Uh, first, <laughs> give me one my question. Is answer this however you want. What are the main things you'll take away from these interviews? Whether it's about Twin Peaks production, legacy, David Lynch, what really struck you? Now that we've kind of gone through all of those. I think that admiring the individual parts of the overall production is something that I'm going to probably be more engaged with. And I, I feel like there's almost like a sense of me being so fond of like the passion in some of these like individual roles that I might even go softer on James. Ooh, that's <laughs> some dangerous point. words. It's some dangerous stuff. I, I could be completely wrong, but it, it would absolutely let me put on a new set of lenses uh, whether or not it's from my biases here or from my biases before being taken off. And just kind of like t- take in those moments and see h- how well they hold up. So mm-hmm. that is what I am expecting to happen. Not sure if it'll be in its entirety. Still, it- it's like a fun romp through a museum. Don't romp in the museum. I will romp like, as I please. Politely walk through, no. look at the visuals. and what? Why do I have to do everything by those sort of terms and rules? It seems like the <laughs> thing that I should take away from these interviews and so on is that I should avoid those rules at all costs. Professor, and you just can't take just take them. art pieces off the wall and start dancing with them in the public we gallery. We need to take them as we please so that we can actually live through our experiences and make the stories we need to. This is also not legal advice just to say, please do not do the following things that I would end up doing. My second question. Now you're doing the eye roll. That's not eye point or else you're <laughs> pointing it across No, that the was room. an eye roll. I will not deny it. <laughs> if you could add three more interviews okay. to these special features, uh-huh. anyone who was not interviewed okay. or if you for some reason want another interview with someone who's already been featured, yes. who are the three cast or crew members you would want interviewed i think uh what, what was his name eric deray eric deray for leo yep yep uh, i think that he brings up a very unique role that i don't really see throughout the whole entire series if you will yeah not only just this outright rage but i want to know like where he kind of comes from where he like ends up getting into the like that mind space especially being that little bit of charm i want to see that little bit of charm that i keep hearing about him mm-hmm. Uh, and not to mention, like, how he feels about these shifts and changes that happened into the second season. I think that that would be a very exciting uh, second point of view. Second one, whoever the actor for Lil Nicky was, uh, I think that that actor, seeing as that person was already watching Twin Peaks as a child, did Twin Peaks really kind of continue to grow with them as mm. he sort of, like, kept growing older himself? And that's uh, Joshua Harris is the Joshua actor. Harris, yes. Did he grow up with Twin Peaks and continue on? Was that passion around him for quite some time? Or is it just something that sort of passed by as mm-hmm. he continued on towards other roles? Again, it's very interesting to see it from the perspective of a child. So you would Twin want Peaks. an interview with little Nicky's actor at the time the other interviews were done, like in the 2000s? No, I think now, because I think that oh. there's enough like retroactive sort of experience okay. that he could just like 
give stories of, but also what's in the present. Obviously, the biases of memory can come into play in which it may not be 100% reliable, but I still think that that retroactive look, especially in that younger mindset, is something too, like, too chewy to not want to chew. Too chewy. You don't, want that don't talk chew. about chewiness with uh, this um, child no, no, actor, no. you no, weirdo. I'm not, I'm not saying chewiness with a child actor. The actor has grown. I'm talking about the adult actor okay. who was How once chewy. a child. I this can, like man in his 30s. We all is. were children once, so I'm saying that whoever this man is in their 30s, I, I want to chew him. Who is your third person? <laughs> who is your third person? <laughs> Criminal. And how about we bring in Scott Frost? Okay. Yeah, we got Jennifer Lynch. Why not Scott Frost, who was also a writer of a prior book? Maybe lesser known, sure, but at the same time, to be a individual who was in charge of a very popular character um, in which it seems that may or may not have connections. I'm imagining likely has connections to Mark Frost. Confused when you say character, what are you referring to? Oh, um, well, he handled the book for Special Agent Dale Cooper. Correct. Yes. And meanwhile... Jennifer Lynch handled. Okay, Laura so you're Palmer. just saying the character he wrote as. Yes. Okay, I thought you meant he acted. I'm like, he didn't act in the show. He acted, but through his words. Well, I, I, I bring that up because you yes. know Warren Frost, the father of Mark Frost, that that he had acted right. Yes. Warren Frost was Mr. Chainsaw Hands himself. But no, I think that there are some very fun insights. I've only looked through a little bit of the book so far, um, but say for example, getting into that mind space of. Dale Cooper, that's far more calculated, um, and it does start inside of his youth. Um, what sort of processes go into something such as that? So, no, I, I, I think that I like looking at the mechanics of things. So if I want to go deeper into it, I want to go into some of the more obscured media. Okay, that's perfectly fair. Um, <clears throat> for myself, I base the first two I picked mainly on what I've heard from their interviews so far through the Brad Duke's reflection book. Okay. So two perspectives I want to hear more from. Uh, Wendy Robbie, who played Nadine. Okay. And Richard Bamer, who played Benjamin Horn. Um, Bamer, I know with his photography, has always had an interesting element behind scenes. And he also appears to have been oblivious to a lot of the dirtier, sordid elements of his character, <laughs> which I think is funny. But he just has such an insightful perspective, I think, to offer um, from what I've read of his interviews. Also, the way that, you know, Wendy Robbie was able to connect to her character, Nivea Nadine. Yeah. I think she really grasped that sadness in her character and, and saw the depth of that character. Mm-hmm. So I would have loved to hear more from those two actors in particular. And then this is a, a double-edged sword. On one hand, it is so tantalizing. On the other hand, it is a forbidden fruit. I, of course, speaking of Kevin Young, the actor for Toad. Do you dare open Pandora's box... Do you dare hear that man speak words out of character? I or speak like I, I have like to. He doesn't speak in character either. That isn't just grumbling. I I need. I I would want. I would want a toad interview. I I am willing to accept the potential cost. And s- such as to Pandora's box as soon as like this person opens their mouth, uh, suddenly like the evils of the world escape, uh, and we're only left with hope. Next up, I believe we're looking at Blue Velvet. So if you are looking to re-watch the movie or maybe see it for the first time prior to our deep dive discussion, 
that I'm sure will be quite lengthy and exhaustive as usual hmm. and full of fun. Mm-hmm. I would recommend you check it out. I will say, however, that I know it's not available on Criterion Channel right now. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> we're going to watch it on our sweet Criterion Blu-ray copy. But if you don't have it on physical media, I think it's currently available to rent on like Amazon and you can find it over on Hulu streaming, I believe. As, at the time, at of least this, at the time of recording, depending on where you live, et cetera, et cetera. At the time of this recording, at this time, it looks like stars. Is kind of like yeah. a hold on to it. So if you pay that extra bit of money for this very specific service. Or if there's like a free trial or something, you know, for like Amazon channels or whatever. For new subscribers only, but... You could do like, um a lot of times on Amazon, you could do those like subscriptions. Yeah. Little trials. Yeah. That might work for it. Might. I don't know. Might work, You'll, might not. You, look, listener, you're resourceful. You are. You will find you, out. Just you. You will pursue all of the legal courses of watching mm-hmm. Blue Velvet mm-hmm. legally. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you'll join us to talk about it. As well as your lawyers, in case they And I do up. want to make sure we're clear on this. Uh, we never stated out loud, but we expect that you, listener, are talking to us when we're doing the pod. Mm-hmm. So as we're talking, I assume that you are also talking out loud. This was and a- don't worry, we can hear you. Yes, absolutely. And If honestly- it doesn't seem like we're replying... It's just because we're kind of in the middle of our own conversation. Yeah. We're hearing every word you say to yourself. Absolutely. It doesn't matter if you're like out in the park or you're at the McDonald's or if you're in bed. We hear you. Or in your bed, which is in the park next to a McDonald's. Or if you're neck deep in a ball pit. You are popping like crazy. If you are on the set of Mary Poppins 2 Electric Boogaloo. You have so many peas you're putting into this. I am just testing your microphone quality. Because you're you're closer at this point, so yes, it would pop. If you are at the Orville Redenbacher's Popcorn Factory, and you are currently being turned into popcorn Willy Wonka style, and you are shouting unto heaven, Orville, pop me. We'll hear you. <laughs> <laughs>